podcast this week, we get a virtual hug from Juno Temple, star of Palmer and Ted Lasso. And we cry wolf, George C. Wolf, that is, as we talk to the director of Ma Rainey's Black Bottom. All that and the usual news and nonsense on the movie podcast that is absolutely flouting the notion that you can't go anywhere in the middle of a pandemic. Why only last week? We went to Greenland, and now we're off to Fista del Mar. Looks lovely. Five stars, says TripAdvisor. Hello, Pod. I'm Chris Hewitt, and welcome to the Empire Podcast. This week, we are back to our full complement of colleagues of such lethal cunning. You might be delighted to hear that is three. Three colleagues of such lethal cunning. We are joined, of course, as ever, by Geek Queen, Helen O'Hara. Hello. As your lawyer, I'd like to make clear that we did not literally go to either Greenland or Vista del Mar. Thanks very much. Is Vista del Mar even a real place? I am 100% certain there are hotels called Vista del Mar. There will be now. There (laughs) will be now. Uh, We're also joined by the living embodiment of Baby Yoda, Ben Travis. Hello. Hello, Ben. How are you? (laughs) I'm good. I'm good. There has been Baby Yoda related news and I'm happy that he is maybe... He's dead, isn't he? uh, No, no, Chris. The opposite of that. He is alive with soul. He is one with the force. No, yes. he's not. No, no. he's alive. He's, he's corporeal. Him. He's w- one with a macaron. But I, I'm pleased that there is. he is going to be taking more select company going forwards after this week's news. <laughs> wow. Okay. <laughs> Did you see what I got? Oh, look at that. Did you crochet oh. that? No, of course I didn't. That's anyway, it's embroidery. <laughs> and my friend Charlotte sent it to me. We were doing a Galentine's gift exchange and she's an embroiderer. So I got a baby, Yo- baby Yoda one that I want. Uh, uh, embroidery. Nerb! Nerb! Nerb alert! Anyway, speaking of giant nerbs, please welcome the king of the nerbs, James Dyer. <laughs> That's lemon and nerb to you. <laughs> That's Nick's preferred Nando's. No, you're absolutely right. That is Nick's preferred Nando's. I'm very much yeah. a medium person. Yes. I like it hot, ladies. I've, some do. And some do. So I've yeah. And I can never remember the name of the extra, extra, extra hot sauce. It begins with a V, doesn't it? It's it does begin with a V. Fusa? Mm. Fusa? I don't know. And uh, I, I tend, now and again, I'll put that on the side of my plate whenever we're having a cheeky Nando's. But it's been well over a year since we had a cheeky Nando's. Yeah, that's true. I don't know why you do that to yourself, because it's very much a kind of like, we then lose you for the second half of the meal. Anyway, uh, enough talk about Nando's. Oh, there's never enough talk about Nando's. There's never enough talk about Nando's. I miss Nando's. Has anybody had a Nando's delivery in lockdown? Yes. No. Same. No. Same. It, was, it, it, no it, it wasn't quite me. as good as uh, as fresh, hot off the grill. <laughs> um, <laughs> what did you have, Ben? Um, my usual, I go for a medium butterfly burger oh. uh, with peri salted chips, uh, spicy rice, and a perinase. Perinase, no. Perinase is like the best no. bit. If, oh my god, I've got a tub of Perinase in the fridge. I've got the peri peri salt <laughs> in my cupboard, which I add to my McCain's oven chips, so that I can have instant Nando's <laughs> chips in my house. Yeah, living the dream. This is the way. Wow. This is the way. I, I I I had my eyes open last week. In fact, we had a Nando's delivery just last week, and I usually go for a butterfly chicken breast. Um, and I go Sorry. for it with medium sauce, and then I put hot sauce and the Fusa sauce on the side, and then I dip them in depending on which one I want to eat at any particular time. But uh, they were sold out. My local Nando's was sold out last week, so I had to go f- instead for a wrap, double chicken breast in a wrap. Mm-hmm. Have you guys ever had that? It blew my goddamn mind. It's got a sweet chili jam in it as well, which which kind of collects at the bottom, and you get hit with this big, 
wave of heat Good towards Lord. the end. It's honestly, I Are we getting think- sponsored by Nando's? Like, what the hell is <laughs> Please do. Please throw Nando's oh at God. us. Oh, my the, God. Um, yeah. The wraps we'll are good. We'll work for Nando's. I, I've had, um, I haven't had a chicken wrap, but I've had the end of a beanie wrap because uh, my partner is vegetarian and uh, generally, like, doesn't finish meals, so I always end up scrumping whatever's <laughs> left, um, like a, uh, like the trash magnet I am. And... Um, yeah, the beanie wrap is surprisingly good. And you're right, Chris, that it has, as well as your sauce, it has like a sort of sweet, yeah. spicy sort of jam situation going on that is <laughs> really nice. very good. It's so anyway, good. Anyway, I'm getting afternoon tea delivered tomorrow if you want some more on-brand really? news. I am, yeah. Is that, uh, why? Um, I'm having a Galentine's Day lunch with another <laughs> bunch of friends. Look, I'm very popular around Galentine's Day. Valentine's Day, not so much, but yeah. Galentine's, I'm all over. So. I can't believe we don't have any listener questions uh, about Valentine's Day. I completely forgot about Valentine's I'm Day, okay even though that. I yeah. will yeah, see the its traditions. But yes, okay, well done, well done, everybody. Uh, Nando's. Um, I, uh, if you're asking for my Nando's order, and I know you are, then I get that butterfly chicken breast. I get peri peri salted chips, which is very nice, and then I get macho peas, macho peas, which are great. Mm, love a macho great pea. On this. Oh my god, good so so good. So good. Sorry, I know we want to finish the Nando's chat, but I've just remembered that I am quoted in a Daily Mail article about the Nando's breakfast. Um, I accidentally... Okay, there's a lot to unpack here. <laughs> what, what there is, is happening? A, there is a Nando's breakfast menu, and uh, I believe it's only available at the Gatwick Nando's. Yes. Uh, and probably about four or five years ago, I went on holiday to Canada and had a Nando's breakfast before getting on the flight it was delicious it was like a chicken sausage and these little uh, like hash brown sweet corny things great obviously i tweeted about it because i'm me and then that tweet got picked up by like loads of places there was like a lad bible article then there was like a metro article and then there was a daily mail article that included my tweets that said ben travis exclaimed it's here as his nando's breakfast arrived <laughs> and you can find that article on the internet if you google ben travis daily mail nando's wow. you will did you find... then say something massively right wing that, 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 that was also quoted by the daily mail uh, no i did not have wings chris it was breakfast oh, i had that's chicken clever sausage. clever ben Clever, Ben. Will you be clever as we move inexorably into the three-fact structure, Ben? Oh, boy. Uh, Because Ben's Ben's facts for this are usually diabolical and shocking and half-assed. I won last time I was on. I won last time. That was sympathy. That was sympathy. I I accepted it anyway. (laughs) Okay. All right. Uh, We'll come to you in a second. Because I've got a bone to pick with James Dyer. Okay. Not, oh, only, yes. not only does he recycle quotes from <laughs> from listeners who meet him in underground car parks and, and deep throat him a fact, but it turns out that last week's fact, yeah, which I can't even remember what it was. Oh, was that that really really the long fact, fact about yeah. the unknown? Yeah, yeah being yeah. filed under unknown. Indeed. What a fact. Um, yeah. Was actually on no such thing as a fish, which is a much more popular podcast. It is. So, James, how do you plead? I, I mean, innocent, innocent by virtue of the fact that I had no idea it had been on that and that the person who supplied it to me did so in bad faith, <laughs> having heard it on that podcast. But yes, I did get That's pilloried for that. That's not bad faith. That's just them passing on some knowledge and that they had fair, acquired. At no point did they tell me it hadn't come from that podcast. They just said, hey, this is a fact. But yes, everyone has has accused me of, of, of plagiarizing. No such thing as a fish. Outrageous. So, sorry to that other podcast. I did not mean to take it. Though I do think I gave your fact a certain amount of showmanship that was frankly lacking in the original retelling. Wow. <laughs> wow. <laughs> I mean, you know, 
we're, 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 we're a fairly popular podcast, Jimbo, but if we go to war with no such thing as a fish, there's only going to be one winner. The fish? <laughs> the fish. <laughs> so long, and thanks for no such thing as a fish. Uh, all right, so Jimbo, you're going to be first this week. Uh, from whom have you purloined your fact? <laughs> uh, John the Baptist. Is who I have purloined my fact from this week. So uh, I'm Solid. fairly confident that he's not going to complain. So this week's fact is dedicated to the late, great Christopher Plummer. But it does not concern his most iconic role. I refer, of course, to General Chang from Star Trek VI, of The course. Undiscovered Country. Uh, so this is a more alpine fact, and it concerns the sound of music. And, as I mentioned... John the Baptist. So this fact comes via friendless churches, which is, um, see, I'm going to get this right up front now. I'm going to full disclosure here. Uh, they're an organisation that care for a variety of like redundant churches around the UK, but they they are the ones who, who pioneered this fact. And they pointed out that doe is not a deer, ray is not a drop of golden sun, and me has nothing to do with the name I call myself, but they are all connected to Christian OG, St. John the Baptist. Now, cast your mind back a little over a thousand years what ago. What are you talking about, you absolute <laughs> mentalist? Also, isn't it 2,000 years if we're going back to John the Baptist? No, no, no. Okay. no. Ah, see, no, no, no. Actually, it's 1,300 years, I think you find, Helen, and it is a monk, a monk named Paulus Diaconus. Uh, and this monk, Paulus, lost his voice. I don't know what it was. It was probably the coronavirus. Anyway, while he was convalescing from having lost his voice, he composed a poem. And he composed a poem to John the Baptist, because that's what you did for fun before Netflix. Now, I could recite the poem for you in Latin, in Latin mm. but I'm going to spare you that. And I'll Thank just God. say that um, much as I would enjoy doing that, uh, I think, you know, we can gloss over the Latin of this. But but uh, it was a popular poem. It went down a storm. And so much, say to, so, much so that uh, later on in the 11th century, a Benedictine monk named Guido of Arezzo took this poem and he turned it into a little earworm, which would have absolutely gone viral on Twitter had Twitter existed at that point. So you remember the notes? Do re mi fa so la ti. So that he would remember the notes to this poem, he took the first syllable for each line. So the poem begins, Ut quiant laxis, resonare fibris, mira gestorum. I won't do the rest of the poem, but it's, that's how it starts. So the first... Liberate tutte me. Yeah, exactly, exactly. <laughs> Dominus. Um, oh, could do with the dominoes. Oh my god. Oh, what's your Domino's Look, game? None of these people are sponsoring us. Stop talking about them. Recently, Jesus. Think it was free food, Alan. The cheeseburger pizza is actually really underrated. Oh, what oh my is god. happening? I god. really like the Sizzler, guys. The, for, for the longest time during lockdown, my local Domino's stopped doing the Sizzler and I was distraught and bereft. But I get the Sizzler and I also get seven chicken strippers beforehand. You dip them into the barbecue. Have anyway, you ever James, had the one sorry, with the yes, sausage sorry. crust? <laughs> No, that's Pizza Hut, isn't it? Good Is lord. It? That's Pizza Hut. Oh, I had that once and it was vile. Domino's does one as well. I uh, just it? want to say kickers over strippers. <laughs> in a chicken sense. I like, I what like you do in your personal life is none of my concern. <laughs> anyway, anyway, the first syllable from each line of this Latin poem to John the Baptist were ut, re, mi, fa, so, la, si. And he used those sounds uh, to name the notes of the C major scale. And as you will all know, old Guido wrote the Micrologus, which was, of course, one of the most popular books of the Middle Ages, the Da Vinci Code of its time, if you will. And I in won't. that book, in that book, he included those seven musical notes, ut, re, mi, fa, so, la, si, which I think you will agree would probably not have made the sound of music quite the banger that it was. Now, as luck would have it, in the 17th century, oh, Giovanni Battista Doni changed <laughs> ut to do, and in the 19th century, Sarah Glover changed C to T because they were easier to sing. And thus we have do, re, mi, fa, so, la, T, and the makings of The Sound of Music's famous floor filler. Um, uh, but, you know, just to get back to the point, lest we forget where this all began, 
Every time you sing that song, you are actually singing a hymn about John the Baptist written by a monk who's been dead for 1300 years. And that is my fact. Okay, but like, to be fair, like the song is a joke anyway. Like it's not literally saying doe a deer, a female deer, ray a drop. Like it's, that's a, a rhyming device to help you remember the notes because we're not that familiar with stories about John the Baptist in Latin anymore. So well, I just, um, you know. We're the poorer for it, Helen. I think you'll agree. <laughs> okay. Yeah. I um I don't. I mean, know I love happening. how you guys filibustered his filibustering fact, though. So that was fun. I was just trying to stop him from getting to the conclusion because I suspected it was going to be terribly dull, uh, and I was not disappointed. Hey, I think we've all learned something today. I don't. I'm not sure what I've learned. If honestly, if you put a gun to my head and asked me to summarize what you just said, I couldn't. <laughs> I mean, I can. It's not too late for me to do the whole poem in Latin. I'm just saying that. <laughs> No, no, it is. No, it definitely is. No, please, please, God, no. Please, God, no. Uh, Hell's Bells. Hello. Please, please don't have a fact as long and dull as that. Oh, God, no. It'll be dull, but not nearly as long. Um, It's about the Dyatlov Pass incident, which I'm sure we're all familiar with, thanks to the Rennie Harlan film Devil's Pass, right? Please recite it in Latin. I mean, it would be in Russian for a start, (laughs) but like, no. Um, (laughs) It is, of course, the incident in 1959 where nine hikers were lost in the Dyatlov Pass in mysterious circumstances. So basically, they were all found in various states of dress and undress. They were all found uh, frozen. Some of them had injuries. Some of them had missing tongues or missing limbs. And none of it really seemed to add up. Like they didn't understand. So lots of the injuries were kind of blunt force trauma, which might explain, might be explained by an avalanche. But usually avalanches bury you. And it wasn't that bad weather. So it's never really been clear how it could be an avalanche. But there's been loads of um, interest in this over the years because they were found with traces of radiation on their bodies. Some of these obviously more kind of spectacular injuries caught people's attention. And and of course, at the time, the Soviet government was not exactly super duper fond of like in- inquiries and stuff that would really get to the bottom of this. And there was a kind of semi cover up and people, or at least people thought there was. So anyway, because of all this media interest that's kind of kept going for the 60 years since, they did reopen the case in 2019. And they decided that it was an avalanche that was responsible for the deaths. But it still didn't explain how that was possible, given that the tent was still more or less standing, nobody was buried, and lots of them seemed to have made their way down the hill quite safely. Um, Some of them were found naked or semi-naked, but that's kind of fairly normal in cases of hypothermia because people weirdly take off their clothes when they get hypothermic. Go figure. And horny. And, uh, and or horny, of course, yes. So there were all these theories about catabatic winds, which are weird kind of atmospheric phenomena that can kind of freeze things. There seemed to have been some of that happening that night, but they couldn't explain what happened until they got together some new computer simulations. And what they did for the to get these new computer simulations working was that they were really impressed by how well the snow moved in the movie Frozen. So they actually got in touch with the Walt Disney Company to talk to the animators about creating the snow effects for Thro- Frozen. And they used that animation code on their avalanche simulation models to figure out how the Dial of Pass incident might have happened. And they now have an entirely new theory, it's still an avalanche, but it's a whole new one, which is basically that a big l- block of snow about the size of like a big car 
slid down the hill and over the tent. That caused most of the uh, injuries, and then the rest were obviously due to freezing. So you're saying Olaf did it? So I'm saying, yes, it wasn't aliens, which has been a serious theory. It wasn't some kind of Soviet government, you know, poisoning incident or cover up. It was frozen. Sorry, it was an avalanche. I've always had my eye on Olaf. There's something off about that guy. I know, right? Very suspicious. They did find carrots at the scene, but you never hear about that. That was covered up. (laughs) Uh, Yes. Ben. Mine actually is really short. <laughs> um, Thank God. And I was looking into Nick Cage craziness this week because we have some Nick Cage craziness coming up later in the show. Um, I'm not sure we do. Oh, <laughs> or maybe we don't. So this is an incongruous <laughs> fact. <laughs> but I was looking into Nick Cage craziness and you guys might know this already, but I didn't know this and it made me laugh. Uh, so we know Nick Cage is a huge comic book fan. Like he took the name Cage from Luke Cage. He called his own kid Kal-El. And he is a massive Ghost Rider fan, which obviously made him perfect to play Ghost Rider across two movies in the noughties. Uh, And my fact is that Nick Cage was so ideal for Ghost Rider that he literally has a tattoo of Ghost Rider on his arm, but they had to cover his Ghost Rider tattoo with CGI for the film Ghost Rider because Ghost Rider would not have a Ghost Rider tattoo of himself. (laughs) That's kind of adorable. (laughs) So yes, one of the special effects in Ghost Rider is covering up Nick Cage's Ghost Rider tattoo. Do you remember when he came into the office and he told Nick us Cage this really... Did. Yeah, or Ghost he told Rider. us this for, <laughs> yes. I think it was it actually, Ghost yeah, for Ghost Rider 2. I think it might have been. Wow. Um, he came in to do a web chat and he told us a very long and involved story about visiting a haunted forest yes. somewhere near where Ghost Rider 2 was filmed and stopping an old man with a bundle of sticks on his back on the way through this forest and asking if he could take a stick. And I genuinely thought the punchline was going to be, and that guy was dead. But no, it turned out the punchline was that he took the stick home from the haunted forest and carved it into a wizard's staff. Yes. Yes. (laughs) (laughs) Of course he did. Of course he did. You could absolutely just turn this entire section into Nick Cage facts every (laughs) single week. And you could do a two-year stint and you still wouldn't be exhausted. No. Because the man is... One of a kind. He is absolutely unique. However, Ben, sadly, as per the rules of the three-fact structure, I did know that. <gasps> that there is we go. Fair. Ben is disqualified. No. And will be thrown into the fiery furnaces at his local Nando's. No. What? Reduced to a crisp, coated in a lovely medium Piri Piri sauce and served with chips, macho peas, and Pyrenees. It's how, it's how he, he would have wanted, wanted to go. Wanted to go. Yeah. <laughs> it's how I'd want to be served as a Nando's. If you lemon and hurt me, I would kick the fuck off. <laughs> <laughs> Nick would be very happy, though. Um, so now my task is to choose between two long and excruciatingly boring facts. Oh my god. I have solved the mystery and disproved aliens. Mine had Latin. (laughs) Mine had Soviets, the Cold War, cover-ups, Olaf. James, James did admit, of course, that he took his from someone else, as per usual, but... Then he sweetened the uh, the pill by making it a charitable organisation that does good yeah. work. So it's hard for I me mean, to disqualify him on those grounds. That's blatant. Helen, like, mm, not sure. Yeah, anyway, I know. Having said that, I think that the winner this week is 
both of you. Well done, everybody. Hurrah. There's no way I can possibly <laughs> choose. So a point each to Helen. Helen has now got 155 points and James has three. Well done, everybody. Uh, <laughs> I, I think James is actually ahead, but hey. <laughs> He may well be. There might be someone at home who is literally keeping track of this. If you are, do please uh, slide into my DMs or just reply to me on Twitter uh, and let me know who is actually winning the three-fact structure. Because that is it for the three-fact structure this week. It is time now for our first guest. Ma Rainey's Black Bottom hit Netflix just before Christmas, but as one of the major awards contenders this year, it has very much hung around in the conversation and lodged in people's brains. It's the second of the Denzel Washington-produced adaptations of August Wilson's Century Cycle plays, and it's directed by Tony Award-winning veteran George C. Wolfe. And having missed each other like ships in the night when it first came out, we were delighted to get a chance to get George onto the Empire podcast. So here is his chat with Amon Warman, all about the challenges he faced making it uh, his film career, working with the late, great Chadwick Boseman, of course, as well. Uh, we should point out that there may be some sound issues on this, as it was conducted on the Dread Zoom. I will try my best to mitigate those. Hopefully, it'll be okay. But here it is, George C. Wolf talking to Amon. Do please enjoy. We are delighted to be joined on the Empire podcast by the director of Marvin's Black Bottom, Mr. George Costello Wolf. How are oh you? God, Costello, Lord. Oh, wow. <laughs> when you come on the Empire podcast, we introduce you right. We spend no expense. Well, go for it. Go for it. <laughs> Um, first of all, I want to say congratulations. This film has been, uh, you know, being received amazingly well. It's picking up nominations everywhere. What's it been like being in this Oscar award season without the typical luncheons and everything else that you would normally be at? Well, the, the thing that drives me completely and totally crazy, um, you know, it's like, you know, we filmed this back in 2000, you know, August around, I think we finished August of 2019. And then I've been tangentially in touch with everybody when we were doing ADR sessions or when we were talking about, you know, you know, I was texting with Chadwick, you know, I, you know, I was trading emails with Viola with everybody and, and everybody ended up, you know, and, you know, getting along really extraordinarily well. And it was great. And so, you know, and so you're editing and then you're doing ADR and then the shutdown happens and then you go, Oh, and it's still going on. And so the thing that is hardest is, I was so looking forward to hanging out again mm -hmm. with the cast and seeing people and, you know, and going to the lunches and sitting at the table and drinking and gossiping <laughs> and having fun. And, you know, and the Zoom, I mean, you, you know, the, the Zoom calls have been great if for no other reason other than we get to see each other to talk and to laugh. But it's been, it's, it's, it's been very, very challenging, not, not ch I would say it's challenging slash you know, it's been disappointing that we can't all be in the room, in the same room together, you know, talking and laughing and sharing the experience that we have. But other than that, you know, it's been great. It's been fine. But that that I feel that I find myself sometimes just being sad about, I, you know, you know, I want to see these people in person. Absolutely. When when lockdown is over, you guys need to get together, have a big old party. Absolutely. Or maybe by that time we won't like each other. Who knows? <laughs> I mean, I was going to say, you know, you should invite me to that party. But if that's the case, if you guys are not going to like each other, I'm not sure if I want to be there. Oh, exactly. There you go. No, it's, you know, I can't wait. I can't wait to see them. I really can't. I really can't. 
in the reaction to the movie that you have seen that you know people have guess have been coming up to you talking to you about the movie has there been a scene which has come up again and again in terms of people's favorite scene that they like to talk about no i'm not really i mean you know it's 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 very interesting what people respond to like a number a number of people you know, the scene where, where Ma Rainey stops and just drinks the Coca-Cola. A lot of people are, you know, are, are, are very into that. It's, you know, yeah, I, I found really interesting a number of women who, who have said to me or emailed me, good for her. Every single time she stood up, every single time she didn't let anybody get away with anything, good for her. And so that was really fascinating. A, a, a lot of people have talked about the end scene where you see the white band playing Levy's song and, and what an emotional impact it had on them. And, you know, it's just, it's, it's, it's different things. And it becomes this sort of kind of personality reveal based on who, who, who responds to what. It's been really, really fascinating. Some people are obsessed with other scenes. And then other people's no, I I really love that moment. So, but it's you know, so it's been really great and wonderful and very varied. One of the nominations that I'm seeing Ma Rainey pick up again and again, which I think is very very well deserved, is a best ensemble nomination. Are you thinking about the alchemy of these actors when you cast it, or is it more you just think about if they're perfect for the role and then you have faith that it all come together? Well, you know, I, I, you know, you, 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 you're primarily thinking about their responsibility for the role. You're, you, you're, you're primarily do, do they have the quality? Do they have what you imagine the role to be? Will it be fun and exciting and challenging and thrilling to be in a room with them? So you're thinking about all those equations. Do what skill set do they have? You know, do they play well with others? You know. So you're thinking about all of that. And then and then you get into the room and, you know, and then God willing and, you know, a chemistry begins to evolve. And 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 and, and when that happens, that's really thrilling. And when everybody involved is is kind of fearless, fearless, fearless in the sense that they're willing to do whatever it takes for the for the work and for the character and for the language and for the film. That's thrilling. And then when you when they ha- have this a, a sense of, of the same set of skill and when they are intensely respectful, when when you start to get that dynamic going and then you and then I'm taking on my job of figuring out how to evolve a, a vocabulary to work with them and they're rising to every single occasion, then these signals you start to reveal yourself and you realize you're in the presence of something potentially that could be quite magical and i think every and i think you know no one while we were filming no one knows what this thing is going to turn into but i think after a while they begin to realize that there was something special going on and i think it really helps a lot when everybody likes and loves and respects each other and then and, and a sense of play and a sense of play and discovery is is going on. Then I think, you know, then that other thing begins to happen. One of the things I like most about the film uh, is that it really lent into the fact that Ma was LGBTQ. Mm-hmm. Um, what conversations did you have with Viola and Taylor about building that dynamic between those two characters? 
I, I, I don't remember exact conversations. I mean, you know, it, to me, it was about figuring out how to spatially manifest the relationship so that they felt, well, it was, it's very interesting, you, you know, with, with Taylor and Viola and with Taylor and Chadwick trying to evolve a physically and spatially what was going on so that they could feel comfortable with each other so that therefore we could be drawn into the equation of intimacy that we were watching. So it was it was more so about that, you know, and, and, and Taylor is has a is, is a wonderful, wonderful actor. And she also has has a background as a dancer. So that so that so her sense of comfort with her body was 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 really helpful. And 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 just figuring out and and, and when and that scene where 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 my singing to her, I remember in, in rehearsal in, in, in our two week rehearsal. I staged it one way where they were facing each other, and there was something there was there was something about it that didn't work. There was just something about it that didn't work. And then on the day of the filming, you know, I changed it so that therefore, you know, Mai is behind her, and they're talking over, and she's talking into her ear, and that, and and you're seeing the hands entwine, and that gave that gave permission for that degree of intimacy in a really fascinating way with the two of them facing each other it, it wasn't quite crackling so it was it was just finding finding how how these two artists actors could breathe with each other so that therefore you felt like you were involved in the texture of their history together this is also not the first time You've worked on a project that's set in the 20s because you also worked on Shuffle Along uh, in 2016, which is also set in the 20s. What do you love about and, working? And I mean, I, I please, every time I look up, I'm back in the damn 20s. So it's, it's sort of <laughs> Well, I was going to say, what do you love about working in that era? What is it about that era that sort of really speaks to you? Well, because, I, you know, it's like, it's come to, you know, it was an extraordinary time just in terms of America. The thing which was really interesting is with the evolution of, of blues, but very specifically with the evolution of jazz, it gave America its own language. Up to that point, in time, and, and, and that language, the blues, blues, you know, blues heavily, in, blues and jazz heavily informed Langston Hughes and also liberated F. Scott Fitzgerald. It, it, gave, it gave this country a, 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 a sense of its own rhythm and language because prior to that, it was, you know, it was very, very, very heavily European influence. So there was this kind of liberation that was happening. New York City was a really fascinating city. All these incredibly brilliant, astonishing, you know, as well as regular folks moved from the South to Harlem. So there was a cultural explosion happening there. You know, and, and then you would, you know, you, you one could walk out one's door and walk down the street past Zora Neale Hurston, past Langston Hughes, past Paul Robeson, past, you know, it was just that all these incredibly brilliant, gifted people were living, you know, within five, 10, 15 minutes of each other, just extraordinary. So that's thrilling. And so there was just this, there was permission. It feels like the world and was giving itself permission to explore language and relationships and identities. And, and, and it was also the first time that downtown 
uh, white cultural Manhattan and black uptown cultural Manhattan started to get to know each other in a, in, in a substantive slash superficial way. So that therefore there were, there were interesting dynamics at play. You know, Shepalong was very interesting to me because it in many respects precipitated, you know, this whole phenomenon of, of, of downtown white people going slumming into Harlem to learn about the music and the culture. So it, it just became, there was this ex- really interesting exchange of energy and culture and rhythms and ideas. And, I, and, and then followed by the 30s and then fascism started to rise all over the planet. So it was like this bubble of possibility that then got stepped on. Now, I, I wanted to ask a little bit about uh, Chadwick Boseman, who is obviously incredible in this movie. Mm-hmm. His on-camera work speaks for itself. What were your off-camera discussions like? What sort of stuff did you talk about? Well, we, you know, we talked about character. We talked about, we, we talked about everything you need to talk about in order. We talked about character. We talked about process. Um, we talked about Levy, who he was, you know, and we, you know, and I shared thoughts and he shared thoughts. And, uh, you, you know, it was, it was, it, it, it was a journey that you go on, tip, that I go on or that one goes on. Typically with actors, you're, you're asking them questions and they're, and they're offering up thoughts. And then maybe you're challenging some of the thoughts by the nature of the questions that you ask. But fundamentally, you're evolving a way of working and, and, and building trust and, and, and building trust so that an actor can feel as though they are, they are safe with you. And therefore, if they expose themselves in the most naked and vulnerable way, they will be protected and honored and respected. And so a lot of the time is spent just doing that. And that's deeply important because if, the, if an actor feels safe, then he's going to become completely and totally emotional, naked to the role and to the language and to the landscape. So, so a lot of that, that time was spent during that. And through the course of it, we evolved a friendship. I, you know, I, I told him I told him a story about a project that I was working on that was based on someone in my family, and then at you know at one point he said, "When you send that to me, send that to me." <laughs> and so when I finished the script, I did in fact send it to him, and and we and he sent me something that he wanted me to direct, and so we were involved in working together again and thinking about that process. So it was it was a very lovely thing, and he was also. Um, there's an incredible sweetness to him and, and an incredible sense of, uh, of there was just, just the brilliant dichotomy of very strong and very forceful and very commanding. And then inside this gentle, caring human being. And, and, and you know, so that he, you, so he can go from the ferocity, the physical ferocity and the emotional ferocity and command of something like Black Panther and then dive so deep into the emotional complexity and the wounded spirit of Levy. And those monologue scenes in particular are very, very powerful. Is that a sequence you build to in production and you earmark and one that everyone's looking forward to or did you sort of get that out of the way early? Oh no! They, no, that no. That, in the, the last week of filming was an incredibly brutal week for him. <laughs> Viola had to. Viola was still filming her TV series, so we shot. Oh, she wasn't filming it, but she had to get back to. So we filmed all of her stuff first, 
so that so that she could get back to LA and start working on how to get away with murder. And um, so that last week was a monster. It was a monster for Chadwick. I mean, you know, one one day he's cursing God, the next day, you know, he's breaking through a door to figure out there's a there's a wall on the other side. I mean, every every single for Monday through Friday was a monster. It's a monster scene. The scene where he's on the stairs with Sturdivant, where he keeps on psychologically surrendering, trying to hold on to the possibility that Sturdivant might keep his word and give him a chance to record the songs. And he keeps on adjusting and checking his energy and checking his anger and checking his desperation and keeps on trying to say what he thinks he needs to say in order to reassure Sturgeon. It's interestingly enough, Chadwick said to me, that scene was one of, if not one of the hardest scenes he ever had to, had to, had to film. You know, because, I think one of the things that was really complicated for him is because that was not, that, you know, I think he could identify a number of things about Levy, but that sense of surrendering and compromising and trying to just in the hopes that somebody might honor and respect you. That was so not, I think, a part of his personality or his makeup. I think he was, a, he, he, oh, I know he was a very direct, very commanding energy in, 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 in a work situation. And so that scene was very, very challenging for him. Mm. Because wow. Levy was operating from a place of desperation that I don't think Chadwick would, would have allowed himself to be so consumed by as an actor. You, you, you allude to it there. So much of this film is about the harsh realities of being a Black creative in a white-dominated industry. And while things are better today, a lot of that still resonates. Did making this movie jog any memories of your own journey? Uh, in this industry? Oh, without question. I, yeah, I, yeah, I mean, I wasn't, yeah, without question. I, you know, I, you know, I've, you know, I've, I've spent my entire career dealing with somebody saying no, and then me going, oh, I don't think so. <laughs> no, that's not, I, that's not going to work here. That is so not going to work here. And then figuring out, you know, from, from being in school, from wanting to get into this, you know, when I was getting my master's, wanting to get into this program, and this woman's figuring out, trying to stop me. And, and, the, and I ended up in the program, and I was the first person in that, in the, in, uh, of all the students in that, and it was a finite number of students to achieve any sort of, like, career visibility success. And so it's, 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 non, it's, it's been nonstop. I've also been incredibly very blessed and very, very fortunate. You know, I ran the public theater for 12 years, which is, you know, you know, the New York State Public Theater. So, so, it's, so it's all tempered. So I can't, the thing that's challenging is there have been a number, an extraordinary number of obstacles that, I, that, I, that I've encountered, but I've also had an extraordinary number of, of options and possibilities that have, that I've experienced within my career. Even so, you know, you periodically find yourself engaged in conversations, and you go, "Really? You're going to try to diminish me at this point in time? 
that's not going to work. And so it's one of the things that Viola and I talked about very early on is the wear and tear and the exhaustion of having to look up and go, oh, I have to fight. I have to fight a whole series of truths in order to get what, and in order to bring the best that I have into the room. I will never forget, Richard Pryor used to do a series of interviews with Barbara Walters. And in one of those interviews, I will never forget this. And I was, I don't know how how old I was when I saw it. But at one point she said, Richard, you're angry. And he says, yes, I am. And she said, why is that? And she was expecting him to go into some diatribe about race or something. He says, you want to know why? Because when it comes to comedy, there is no one in the world better than me. And I still have to ask people's permission to do what I do. There was no blues singer better than Ma Rainey. And she still had to ask permission to do what she did brilliantly. She had to fight about a cult. She had to fight about what arrangements of a song. And sometimes she was wrong because if she was smart, she would have listened to Levy and done his arrangement. So we all know these dynamics of having to fight to share the best that you have to offer. That, that dichotomy is, is endlessly exhausting. But then, like I said, you know, I've, you know, I've had a very, you know, I've, I've, I've been in rooms and I've done work and, you know, I've done directed 17 plays on Broadway and, you know, and, you know, I, I, a lot of wonderful, wonderful things have happened for me. And so, any, so I'm not negating any of that, but the struggle is ongoing. The struggle just is ongoing. It just is. And on that note, George Costello-Wolf, thank you so much for your time. We really appreciate it. Thank you. Okay. Take care. Okay, so that was George C. Wolfe, and of course, Ma Rainey's Black Bottom is available exclusively only on Netflix right now. Maybe if cinemas reopen at some point, you may even get to see it on the big screen. What a time to be alive. Time now for the listener question this week, and I have to say that it's usually the listener question is a source of great lols as we you know, <laughs> search our film knowledge uh, or lack thereof. Uh, this week's a little bit more serious and it comes from at Tink underscore Bryson who slid into my DMs with the following, which I think has only become more pertinent over the, over the last 24 hours or so. Uh, she says, following on from the investigation about Joss Whedon on Justice League and now Charisma Carpenter coming out with her story about Whedon uh, uh, alleging abuse of power and the establishment of a toxic uh, mindset on set of Buffy the Vampire Slayer and Angel, of course, which she starred in both. Can we, and this is Tink Bryson again, can we separate his art and his personality? Some of his films and shows are my favourites and now they feel tainted. I know this is a huge question from Harry Potter to Roman Polanski, but where is the line? Now, this is something we've discussed many, many times in the past on the show. Mm. I think it's a little bit more relevant as well in the last 24 hours because news broke last night that Gina Carano, who plays Cara Dune in The Mandalorian, is no longer going to be playing <laughs> Cara Dune in The Mandalorian. She's the worst Dune. Uh, she she's Cara Dunn because she has been 86th by Lucasfilm in a response to an escalating series of social media posts which were ill-advised at best and very, 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 very stupid and offensive at worst. So this is a big question. This is something I think that, you know, we all have to make our own personal peace with. Yeah. You know, if you're watching it or if you love something, you know, it's no surprise to know that the four of us in this room are huge fans of the MCU. 
I know that Helen and uh, James love Buffy the Vampire Slayer. I'm not sure where you stand on that, Ben. It's my favourite show of all time. Well, there so, you go. Well, so, well, it's also, my God, we've got the right people in the room this time uh, <laughs> around. And, you know, I, I think Joss Whedon's work on both Avengers movies that he made, uh, the original Avengers and Age of Ultron, is great. I love those mm. movies. Um, uh, but we've had this discussion in the past when, you know, about, when, Kevin, when news broke about Kevin Spacey or allegations about Brian Singer or... How do you deal, from your personal point of view, how do you deal with shows, films made by people who are now, to use the modern parlance, problematic at best and toxic at worst? Well, I have a slight clarifying question here. It's like, do you do you guys distinguish between on-screen and off-screen talent? So, like, it's easy, I think, to watch something like The Usual Suspects and not necessarily have Brian Singer in your mind. And yet, obviously, with Kevin Spacey being on-screen that's a slightly different thing. Like, So how do you feel in terms of visually seeing the people so they're em- emblematic of what you're watching or just knowing they're the creative force behind it? Is there a distinction for you guys there? No, not really. I think it's a sort of personal thing. I, I would feel... Um, I would rewatch the early X Men films, whereas like, I wouldn't not rewatch the usual suspects, but I know I would go into it feeling kind of uncomfortable the whole time whenever... Kevin Spacey was talking or or appearing on screen that like he, he, he can't help his presence can't help but come with that baggage that I know for me is gonna be a bit of a distraction and make me feel like oh so unless I really wanted to watch the usual suspects for other reasons I think it would just generally put me off going back to it rather than it being a hard and fast I will never watch this again it's just mm. I'd, I'd rather like just watch something else that isn't yeah that I'm not gonna be there the whole time feeling like oh the couple of things I've seen that had Kevin Spacey in them since those things emerged, just because I'd forgotten he was in it, he was in a supporting role, whatever. You do have that moment of, oh no, um, when he turns up on screen. The, the thing is, I think with all of this stuff, it might be helpful to stop talking so much in terms of singular talents in film. Um, in particular, it might help to step away from this idea of the auteurist genius who is the guiding light and the driving force behind a film, because even the people who are best at their jobs are working with a hugely talented team around them. And if once you do that, then it becomes a little bit uh, not less important because it is still important, but less overwhelming when you try and go back and watch some of this stuff. Because apart from anything else, you can appreciate the work done by people who were usually this person's victims. Obviously, you know, some mm. some cases, some allegations may differ, but in the case of somebody like a Whedon or a Joss, uh, John Lasseter, or you know, a lot of these people, even a Roman Polanski, although I don't rush out and watch his films, then you can appreciate the work of all the other hundreds of people who made the film and not mm-hmm. worry so much about one godlike auteur mm. who takes credit for all of it. Um, and I think maybe if we move mentally and socially towards that, towards a slightly more collective awarding of credits, then we move away from um, putting too much power in these people's hands, and we also move away from this idea of them having so much power that they're able to do a lot of this stuff. Um, because mm. that's, I think, the, the danger. When you start crediting all of this inspiration to one person then that puts them in a position where this kind of stuff can happen it's also not limited to what we know is it like like we we can talk about sort of like um you know putting things in the cancel box when we know 
there's an abuser at the heart of it. But for every one we know mm. about, there's got to be like a hundred we don't know about. So, you know, I, I, I try very hard to separate the art from the artist if I can in my head. I think part of the way I watch films mm. where I kind of immerse myself in the mythology of it is I don't really see actors, I see characters. So I don't think I would have any problems rewatching The Usual Suspect. Uh, I wouldn't watch House of Cards again, but that's for different reasons. Um, but equally, you know, and, and I might watch a Roman Polanski film, although weirdly that I might struggle with a little bit. But equally, I think there's a difference between watching the film and then platforming the person. Like, I wouldn't want to platform Roman Polanski yeah. and I wouldn't want to celebrate him in any way. But that wouldn't change how I felt about, well, it might change how I felt, but it wouldn't stop me watching all of his historical films. But I flat absolutely would not want to give him any auction of any time. And frankly, I think he should be in prison. Yeah, I, I think the, the Buffy one is interesting because... Um, partly how Joss positioned himself, partly how that show was positioned yeah. as being obviously incredibly feminist and empowering. Yes. And like Buffy yes. as a character is amazing. And a big part of the character of that show was that it was Joss's writing, which sounded mm. and felt like unlike pretty much anything else on TV. I think it's notable that Sarah Michelle Geller posted on her Instagram that she um, absolutely still wants to be associated with Buffy Summers. She just doesn't want to be associated with Joss Whedon. Yeah. And I think for yeah. me, that's sort of where what it comes down to. For me, really sort of big ones that play in my head, uh, well, obviously now uh, Joss Whedon, and I guess that has been brewing for a few years as well. This isn't the mm -hmm. very first this we've heard of him yeah. kind of having this side to himself. And obviously the JK Rowling, Harry Potter thing is huge for me because I like as somebody who loves the pop culture that I love, I do sort of feel like this stuff is in my DNA, these these shows and these books and these stories. And I think what makes it extra disappointing and frustrating and upsetting when these allegations come out is that they are very contradictory to the tenets of those stories. Like Harry Potter is all about love and acceptance and about everybody should be welcome and it's about and Buffy is a feminist text it's like got this incredible mm -hmm. like a lot of incredible female characters who got to lead the screen in a way that they didn't get to in other things at the time which makes it all the more fucked up that while people were watching those stories and getting all the goodness yeah. out of it the people who were bringing those stories to life were experiencing the sort of toxic shit that these shows that that show kind of railed against but I think for me I can still I can still read Harry Potter, watch the Harry Potter films, watch Buffy and get the things that I love and need out of those stories, like the values of those stories, even if they now seem contrary mm. to the views of the people who made them, I, I can still sort of hold on to that. But that, that's the weird thing, isn't it? That the people weren't listening to their own stories. Um, and, uh, you know, you mentioned Rowling, you mentioned uh, Whedon, also Lasseter. Like, what were these people doing? How did they not see? Um, and it is frustrating. And I know, look, humans are, you know, flawed people, and we all have ideals that we we fail to live up to from time to time. But the sheer scale of all these allegations and and, and our behaviours is just um, it is depressing and it is upsetting. Mm. And I absolutely understand why people may want to take a take a moment away from the art because they they have trouble reconciling this behaviour with it. But I think I'm I'm with you in the end that the message of the art remains. And is still good, um, even if the people behind it are, 
failing to live up to it uh, to a horrific and horrendous degree. And as you said quite rightly, Helen, like that art is not the expression of a single person. It is a collaborative effort. A lot of people involved in a lot of very, a lot of very fine people. Um, but uh, you know, I think yeah, Whedon's a particularly difficult one, exactly as Ben said, because he was held up as mm. this sort of like feminist cheerleader, this sort of you know example of you know an aspirational reformed, you know, without a hint of toxic masculinity, that was his image. And then I remember when that, when his wife posted the famous post yeah. a while back, that was kind of shattered slightly. And all of this has, has served to, to reinforce that. So it does feel a little bit like not only have we now essentially lost Joss Whedon, let's be honest, but he's, it's sullied something that we once held in such high regard with such high ideals. And you mm. feel a little bit dirty now looking at it because you're reading into it. You're thinking, you're rewatching it with fresh eyes thinking, oh my God, now knowing what was going on behind the scenes, what am I now seeing on screen and how does it affect the, the themes that I'm pulling out of this? I think it is. I mean, th this case in particular, from what we know, which obviously is not the whole story, it yeah. does seem like one of these, uh, you know, lip service uh, cases, somebody who who isn't capable of walking the walk, um, and it is. I'm I'm with you, James. It's really really depressing uh, for someone who who we did hold up as a hero and we did believe was a hero, and we whose work we still love. It is, yeah. It's it's really just not good. But at the same time, like. <sighs> I just, I just don't understand. I fundamentally don't understand how you, how walking the walk and talking the talk get that far apart, and how yeah. you don't stop to realise it. But I do think it is a thing. I think you will. You talk to a lot of people who be honestly believe they are feminists and honestly believe they are doing the right thing, but also believe that many of the women they come into contact with are just crazy bitches, and they have mm. not put the two together and have not actually listened to women enough to realise where the problems are. And I think, so there's this kind of lip service feminism and not just feminism, other things as well, where people are like, oh, I'm definitely a feminist. Yeah, I'm totally a feminist, but you know, she is just driving me nuts because she keeps asking for things. And it's like, well, okay, but just take a moment and think about yeah. it. And and I think maybe that's that's why we get the separation. Maybe it's, it's a sort of reflexive, un, unconsidered feminism that he ultimately was, was espousing. And, you know, it didn't, it didn't live up to its own high ideals. So lack of self-awareness as opposed to being massively disingenuous. I mean, yeah, I don't want to make excuses in any way. I don't want it to sound like I'm minimising it, but I do think there is, there are people, and I'm not saying Joss Whedon is one, but he may be, who would absolutely consider themselves good people, fair people, non-racists, non-sexist, everything else, who have all of these beliefs, who don't live up to them on a, on a daily basis, who just don't do the right thing mm. because they're not actually thinking in those terms in terms of themselves, because they're so convinced I'm a good person, I wouldn't do anything wrong. It's, we, we all talked about it last summer in terms of Black Lives Matter. There's a difference between being non-racist and being anti-racist. And I think maybe this is the case with Whedon. Maybe he was non-sexist kind of feminism as he saw it, but he wasn't anti-sexist and he wasn't actually doing anything to change the picture. And he wasn't actually empowering his female st staff. And in fact, he ended up therefore perpetuating incredibly toxic yeah. power structures and, and behaviours, so it seems. So maybe that's what's happening. And I don't say any of that as an excuse, but only as an attempt to understand what the hell is going on here and how mm. he could be so far from the ideals that his show portrayed. Because he's like the, almost the opposite of Gina Carano, who to a certain extent has never in any way tried to hide her political views and her leanings. Mm. Um, but with her, I think it's... Hers is a slightly different one, isn't it? It's that, yes, of course she's entitled to her 
rather right-wing political views, but they have verged into slightly uncomfortable territory, and some of her posts have definitely crossed a line. But equally, it's like, at, at what point does Disney as a company look at that and think, you know, on the one hand, yes, you shouldn't be saying that... I mean, maybe you should be saying... like she Her, her point was, you shouldn't be vilifying someone for their political views. And it's like, I don't know that that holds water. I think if your political views are massively racist and kind of offensive mm-hmm. and marginalising to huge sort of like slices of the population... Then- also yes, dangerous, you should be vilified forget. and dangerous when you're inciting civil unrest. Uh, anti-masks, all that. Yeah, maybe you should be vilified for that stuff. And it's not, you know, I'm not going to reiterate her most recent one, the one that she ultimately got fired for. But, uh, I mean, comparing yourself to a population like that is kind of disgusting. Hmm. It's it's accountability, isn't it? It's yeah. it's not It's not like free speech has never been, hey, I can say whatever you want and nobody can do anything about it. It's, hey, you can say whatever you want, but if what you're saying is fucking horrible or is like denying people's rights and will Mm. to live and to feel safe in our society, then there will be consequences. There there will be consequences and there are consequences. I I think for for everyone, really, the, the best thing to do is just to take some time to stop and think for yourself about how you personally feel about these things, about how personally connected you are to these people or to their art or what you take from it and what you personally feel comfortable with. Whether if you don't want to revisit any of this stuff ever again, that's perfectly fine. If you do because you get things that you need and that are positive for you out of it, then feel free to do that. Do you want to personally financially contribute to these people's work in future? Like, I mean, to be honest, I don't think it sounds like Joss will particularly work again, obviously having stepped away from the HBO show, The Nevers, that's coming up soon. Um, so maybe, yeah, it might not be possible to financially contribute to these people's kind of work in the future because they might not work again after these allegations come out. But I think it's all just making sure you take the time for yourself to really think about how you feel about it and how you want to react to that situation. I mean, I, I don't. It's this is really horrible. I don't know that they won't work again. I don't know that Hollywood works that way. But I, what I would like to see is actually not that people get cancelled forever and, and there's no no way back. What I'd like to see is some kind of learning and growth and second chances. Now I, I say that. I, I don't think that you know straight white men who are rich and powerful and successful should be given second chances. When no one else gets them, but I think everybody should get them. So that's what I'd like to see. Ideally, I would like to hope that there's kind of redemption stories in our future. But at the moment, like if you if you if you don't see that you've done anything wrong, then it's really mm. really hard to to kind of get past that. But redemption, you kind of have to want it, yeah. don't you? Like it yeah. seems so many people say, "Oh yes, I went to anti-racism camp for a month, and now I'm cured of my racism." Oh, I am it's now. It's not even uncancelled. that. They, they go into, they literally sort of just go to detox and and say they were tired or something, and you're like, "Well, that doesn't have anything." Oh, I was struggling with pills. Were you really okay? <laughs> racism pills. This is again. This is not to say that any of this was connected to these specific people we've been talking about, but there is this habit of people thinking if I just go away for a few months, then I can come back, and and that's really really not what I'm talking about when I say redemption. What I'm saying is specific, measurable steps to try and, if not undo the harm you've caused, at least do some good to begin to make up for it. And specific accountability, responsibility, um, acknowledgement of of the hurt you've caused and, and attempts to redeem yourself. And that doesn't mean that you go away to your compound in Maui for six months and then come back. Blimey. Um, it's a tricky one, isn't it? It is. 
It really is. Uh, we've always said it in the podcast that your mileage may vary when it comes to this, and it varies with all four of us, uh, in mm. fact, as you can see. Big old discussion, folks. Really enjoyed that. That was a laugh riot. <laughs> that was a laugh riot, wasn't I'm glad it? glad we front-loaded all of the uh, Nando mm. sex puns at the beginning of the podcast. I don't understand why you all love Nando's so much, even. Because it's the greatest food in oh, all the world, God, Helen. It's, like the it's incredible. Fast food. It just tastes of nothing. What do you oh, mean it tastes of nothing? How Have you, you taste? How many Nando's? Oh, okay, Helen's cancelled now. Sorry. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Unfortunately, Helen, yeah. that is an opinion I, I just cannot be on board from, with. Not from that you one. can't no. be redeemed. I, I will not be financially contributing to Helen's feature until she issues a full apology. <laughs> See, we got some we got some lols in there at the end. We got some chuckles in. It's not all heavy going. Uh, if you want to have your question read out in the Empire Podcast, you can get in touch with us via one method, one method only at the moment, which is my Twitter. Uh, I'm at Chris Hewitt on Twitter. You can either slide into my DMs as at Tink underscore Bryson did, uh, or you can reply to any of my tweets or wait for a panicked shout out every now and again. Time now for the movie news, and we're going to start. James mentioned Christopher Plummer. Christopher Plummer was the the backbone. If you were cast your mind back to James's fact, if you fell asleep halfway through, I don't blame you, but uh, it was based around Christopher Plummer, the great Christopher Plummer, who passed away last week uh, on Friday, in fact, at the age of 91. Uh, one of the all-time greats, mm. absolutely all-time greats, from The Sound of Music to his astonishing performance in Knives Out, for which I think he should have won an Oscar. He won Best Supporting Actor a few years ago, of course, for his role in Beginners. Wonderful, wonderful Canadian actor. Where do you begin with Christopher Plummer? The Sound of Music, why not? Uh, Star Trek 60, Undiscovered Country, but sure, <laughs> we will, go on. We will, we will also get to that. But you've no, not Luke. heard Shakespeare, Helen, until you've heard it in the original Klingon. Yes, well, <laughs> luckily, I have, I have heard Shakespeare by that token. Um, but no, he, look, he's, he's wonderful, but this role does kind of overshadow the rest. And I think he resented that for a long time and then was apparently forced to watch it at a children's party. Huh. And, um, you know, because the... The, the hostess was like, look, you know, the kids would really love it if you would watch it with them. They'd be just so thrilled. And he sort of sat down and watched it and was like, you know what, it's actually quite charming. And so I, I do think he came around on it, even though he he resented the, the extent to which it overshadowed his career. But even on that score, I think in the last few years, he'd very much emerged from that shadow. So I hope that he that helped him make peace with it because he's great as as the captain. And I don't think that film would work without somebody quite as upstanding and, and sort of sensible for Maria to bounce off. Mm. So that was he was fantastic in that. But then, yeah, in recent years, he's been the sort of, I guess, elderly authority figure, usually with a bit of a sinister side in, in a lot of his films. You know, if you, if you think about 12 Monkeys or Knives mm. Out, you know, there's a little bit of darkness to Plummer that I think always gave his roles an extra something. Oh, and all the money in the world as well. Like, oh, I think yeah. it's not just um, exceptional that he stepped into that role um, and and with what, like nine days to go or something, or just shot it in such a short amount of time at such short mm. notice, but that he is still so damn good in, in that film. He really <laughs> kills it. Um, and yeah. yeah, he definitely had a sort of very dark side there as the, uh, as the head of the Getty estate. Mm -hmm. mm. Yeah, thinking also of Inside Man. Yeah. Where he, he um, has one of cinema's great insults slash compliments to Jodie Foster's character. He goes, you really are a magnificent cunt. Bangly banked. Uh, to which she replies, thank you. 
<laughs> she takes it in the spirit in which it was intended. Uh, he plays a big old Nazi in that. Spoiler alert if you haven't seen it, Inside Man. Oh my God. Great film. Fantastic film. Uh, yes, really, is. really good. Up, of course, he was the voice of Charles Muntz, the bad guy in that. He was uh, in Girl with a Dragon Tattoo. Basically, whenever he should have been retired. And I love this about a lot of actors. They, they don't retire. They don't hit 65 and, you know, get the bus pass and the Werther's originals and sit down in front of the TV and watch Countdown, which is exactly what I would do. In fact, it's not far off what I do now on a daily basis. Uh, but he absolutely went for it, uh, which is why I was really surprised to hear that he had passed away. Yeah. It felt like he'd be here for another 20 years looking exactly the same and doing <laughs> yeah. pretty much the same roles. Yeah, because uh, he was so full of life and so full of vitality. And I know it feels a little bit first base, but when's it ever stopped me before to to talk about one of his last roles? But he's so good in Knives Out, mm. guys. I'm kind of amazed that he didn't get Oscar nominated for that performance. The, the scene alone, whereas Harlan Thrombey... He and uh, Anna, de, Anna de Armas, who also, I think, should have been Oscar nominated for Knives Out. Um, you know, the, the pivotal scene where he realizes that he's going to die. So much is going through his mind in the space of about two minutes. And it's all laid bare. And it's a, it's a scene full of such wisdom and wit and regret and a life lived and all that stuff. It's absolutely wonderful. He was... Tremendous, yeah. And I don't think you look at him in that film and think that, it, like, he is clearly the the archetype. There is the elder statesman, but mm-hmm. he doesn't he doesn't look or feel old in the way that maybe some legendary actors who you see them on screen now. You're like, oh, it's lovely to see you, but God, I hope you're doing okay because you look a bit old and doddery. <laughs> um, but with Christopher Plummer, you you didn't feel that. You never yeah. looked at him and thought, oh, I, like I hope you're doing okay, man. Because he always seemed to, like he was just doing amazing work right up until the end. I, I love, um, it's slightly facetious, but I love the, I think it was like a niche letterboxed genre that was uh, the films in which Daniel Craig goes and investigates Christopher Plummer's family uh, regarding <laughs> a crime uh, and at least one member of the family is a Nazi. <laughs> and that was, of course, Girl with the Dragon Tattoo and Knives Out. <laughs> Amazing. What, only two? Ugh. Amazing. Um, yeah, I think I think if you look at his career post The Sound of Music, in the last 10, 15 years, he had a bit of a renaissance for sure. Mm. Um, and there were great films after The Sound of Music, of course, great great films and great performances. He was one of those people I think was incapable of giving a bad performance for, for one thing. But uh, there were some... There were, there were fallow times, I think, career-wise. The 1980s perhaps wasn't his, his best era. But there are great films scattered all the way through you know, mm. the 70s and the 80s. He was a very, very good uh, Sherlock Holmes in Murder mm. by Decree. If you've never seen that, it's a really, really good film. He was Rudyard Kipling in The Man Who Would Be King. And he is one of the two big three actors from that movie to pass away recently. And uh, let's protect Michael Caine at all costs, mm. shall we, folks? God, yes. He was in The Thornbirds. That was really big for a certain generation of people. The Thornbirds, the Richard Thornbirds. Chamberlain. Uh, he's in Somewhere in Time, which is a batshit love story, time travel romance with uh, Christopher Reeve and Jane Seymour. It is uh, either classic scene in the issue about to come out or the one that has come out. I, I'm, I'm losing track of time here, but that's if you've never seen Somewhere in Time, treat yourself. And who could forget him, of course, as the bad guy in Dragnet? where he was oh, the leader right. of the cult people against goodness and normalcy pagan 
Pagan. Pagan. Now you think Sword has uh, has bent over backwards to make its acronym work? Pagan. <laughs> People against goodness and normalcy. And it's one of those things where you go, I can't believe Christopher Plummer is in this this really daft comedy, but he he sells it. He really did. Another more recent one. Um, I absolutely love him in Mike Mills's Beginners. I think that's yes. a beautiful film. Uh, he plays a uh, an old a man who comes out as gay in his later years, and just while he has a few years left, decides to sort of seize life by the balls. That's a beautiful film, and and he's he's really great in that. Yeah. Mm-hmm. But uh, we can't, of course, talk about Christopher Plummer without giving the floor over to James and Helen to wax lyrical about <laughs> Star Trek VI, The Undiscovered Country. Oh, such a good film! <sighs> so and he's so good in it! Oh, I love it. I love it a lot. Well, yeah, I mean, you do have to give him props for being able to act through Klingon, you know, pr- prostheses. Um, you know, the forehead does not deter him. He is still really freaking good. Doesn't even eye patch in that, or is that he does? Yeah. Yeah. He does. And okay. a little, and a tiny little, tiny little ponytail. Of course. Yeah, he's uh, he's amazing, and he his Klingon enunciation is is spot on. <laughs> <laughs> what a what a touching tribute to to, to the to the great Christopher Plummer, who passed away last week at the age of ninety one. Kaplach. Kerplunk. <laughs> Not right now. <laughs> Got a podcast record, but thank you. Maybe later. Uh, other things that happened last week, just we'll get into the Super Bowl traders in a second. But one thing that dropped just after we put the podcast up, of course, was news of Chloe Sow, mm. director of Nomad Land, which I believe may be the favorite to win Best Picture at the Oscars, mm. and Eternals, uh, which will be out later in the year, COVID <laughs> permitting, of course, uh, is has lined up her next film. And it's it sounds batshit insane with the emphasis on bat. <laughs> it's a new adaptation of Draculaer, and uh, but this time it's Draculaer reimagined as a sci-fi western. Yep. Careful. Okay. Hundred percent. As Bram Stoker intended. I mean, you know, you you say it's her next film, but the speed that she works, who knows? Because who knows? you know, Nomadland, she just kind of did while she was probably on lunch break from from uh from the eternals so she's she's phenomenally prolific and i can't wait to see what she did next spoiler but nomadland is astonishing um and i think this will be really really interesting as well Mm -hmm. sci-fi western presumably a futuristic sci-fi western because i don't know dracula 2000 pretty much nailed the (laughs) sci-fi element of dracula well if if it's a little bit near dark that can only be a good thing vampires and westerns go together really really well which is the dracula where he punches Draculier. an army with a fist made of bats. Oh, that's Dracula Untold. Yes, that's the one. <laughs> that's possibly the greatest moment in the history of cinema. I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> a fist made of bats, Helen. A fist made of bats. That's the most is it the is it though moment in the history of is it though moments. Is it though? Yeah, very, very excited about this. I'm also excited because we've seen nothing of Eternals. I thought there might have been a trailer at the Super Bowl. There's nothing of this yet. But people who've worked on the movie have been saying very interesting things about it, feeling and looking unlike anything Marvel have made to date and making it in a very Chloe Sow way where they're, they're on location and they're chasing the light and they're shooting at magic hour. And that sounds really intriguing to me. Uh, but also you have like people with superpowers um, and costumes. Woo-hoo. So, yeah. Also, they shot a bit of it in Camden next to the office. So I'm looking forward to seeing, seeing Twilight of Camden. <laughs> they did. I'm seeing if the, the Camden Ranch of Nando's makes it into the film. Yes. So oh, remember, the time, remember the time we were in our old place in 
Mappen House, Mappen House so. in the centre of London, and um, the cafe next door to us, uh, Nanny's, was taken over for the day uh, by a film shoot. And we were like, what the hell is shooting here? And we went, we went down, like literally next door to the Empire offices, and we, we popped outside. And it was, it was only bloody Simon Pegg and Martin Freeman shooting that movie that they shot together. You know the one? The one with um, that one. Oh, yeah, that one. Hang on. Oh, that one. The Good Night? The, the, the one. The Good Night, that is that? Am I I, a good Night or is that? Yeah. Anyway, so <laughs> literally just, I was like, oh, there's a Simon Pegg movie shooting right, right outside our, <laughs> our offices. What are the odds? And we went down and we actually just waved at Simon. <laughs> he, like, he called us across. And we ended up with an impromptu Simon Pegg and Martin Freeman <laughs> interview. <laughs> well, this is like me and you, Chris. Uh, basically, between our houses uh, is the Old Royal Nova College in Greenwich, which yes. is this setting for basically everything, including something last week. And I had a brief shining moment. It only lasted about a minute and a half, but I had a brief moment where I thought it might be Wheel of Time, Squeeze. and I was super excited. Uh, there were reasons. I wasn't just, you know, I just, don't, I don't think everything is a Wheel of Time, but there, I had reasons. But uh, yeah. sadly, it wasn't. Anyway, so that was a great story. Thanks, thanks, Helen. I'm, I'm glad you shared. I'm glad you shared. There was a film that I thought it was going to be a film, but it wasn't the film I thought it was going to be. It was, was a different be, film, so that, yeah, which, which also film. sounds cool, actually. You thought it was a Wheel of Time, but it actually turned out to be a load of Trollocs. <laughs> hey, that's a very good wheel of time joke, he, guys. He, he said something that sounds like bollocks, so I laughed. That's how I work. That's how I work. Uh, yeah, for example, I was never officially on the set of Enola Holmes, but I walked through the set of Enola Holmes mm. for a solid week yeah. on my way to yeah. the DLR. Uh, whenever they took over the uh, old Royal Naval College, uh, I saw some shooting of Cruella happening in the same thing because it was mm -hmm. an outdoor shoot that, and yeah. we just stood by the fence and, and watched it happen. And then Cruella shot on my street, <gasps> uh, literally on my street. I got like a note through my <laughs> letterbox going, we're going to be taking over your street to shoot Cruella. And I was like, oh, well, okay, maybe I'll do a quick sneaky set visit. But no, turns out that I just had to look out my window and watch some people reverse a car. That's what the shot was. They were reversing a car into a car parking space. I mean, Whoa, spoilers, spoilers, Chris. Come oh on. God. Sorry, sorry, sorry. Yeah, later Jesus. this year. Sorry. Felt strange that a Dalmatian was driving, though, but, <laughs> but hey-ho. Anyway, uh, talk of Chloe Sao and the fact that there's no Eternals trader yet uh, leads us uh, naturally to the Super Bowl. Trader spots Super Bowl happened at the weekend. Tom Brady uh, led the Tampa Bay Buccaneers uh, to a glorious victory. But uh, during that, I love the idea that there's a load of geeks who watch the Super Bowl every year and they don't know anything about the sport. They just want to see if there's a trailer for Fast 9, Falcon and the Winter Soldier and the new M. Night Shyamalan movie. And they weren't disappointed this year, oh. were they? Magnet truck. Magnet truck. <laughs> the, big, the big magnet in a truck. Yes. Helen Mirren doing like donuts in a purple sports car. And I, so obviously we're talking Fast 9. I, I mean, think... I was, I was thinking, I was, I was like, that, that, that doesn't sound anything like the trailer for old, but okay. <laughs> I, I think if you pause the Fast 9 trailer about four seconds in, there's a shot of them you all. Can see of course, penis. I knew you were going to say that. I knew I was waiting for you to say that. <laughs> Who's, it would have to be, it would be contractually obliged to be Vin yeah. Diesel's, right? For this film. Oh, almost certainly. Um, yeah. Vin Diesel's penis has to be CG, don't you think? I don't think. No, I don't think. No. Mm -mm. No. Um, anyway, I think if you, if you pause about four seconds into the trailer, 
There is a shot of them all, of course, having a family barbecue. And I believe we know that <laughs> Lucas Black is returning as his character from Tokyo Drift. We know that Han his Solo character. is back. Yes. <laughs> his cast and that character's was- name, Ben, is... <laughs> It's like you're trying to remember that Simon Pegg Martin Freeman film. Jim. Oh, yeah. Caleb. No, Lucas. Sean Boswell. Sean Boswell. So we know Sean Boswell's back. We know Sun Kang is back as Han Solo. But it looks like there may be other members of the Tokyo Drift family making their way into Fast 9. Well, I mean, they made such an indelible impression that i cannot fair, wait to see them again I, i'm i applaud this because like for for a long time the kind of tokyo drift has been the unwelcome stepchild of the fast family and mm. that it's the only one that feels a little bit like a straight to video release and yet now they fully embraced it and they've canonified the shit but i mean they have done already because lucas black's turned up one of the previous ones didn't he but uh mm. still and there is a there is a fan appreciation for tokyo drift the yeah. tokyo drifting in tokyo drift is is good it's tokyo really drifting. Very skiddy. it's yeah. a lot of and tokyo and tokyo yeah. and and do you know what when you go back and watch it as well it's got that absolutely insane hulk car that like tiny like bright green car with hulk <laughs> fists coming out of the side it's like the most gloriously ugly early 2000s thing you've ever seen in your entire life so I hope we that should... makes an appearance in Fast 9 as well. Cannot wait. Cannot wait. But I've, but I have Falcon and the Winter Soldier to keep me going in the meantime, so that's yes. good. And they're in couples counselling. I know. Oh. That trailer oh. looks so much fun. I am so looking forward to our spoiler specials for Falcon and the Winter Soldier. Yeah, I, d- I do feel like there's a lot they're holding back. I think this is another example of Marvel giving us a trailer that gives us approximately a 5% impression of anything about the film. And I'm not saying it gives us 5% of the plot. I don't think it even comes close to that. I just think this is about a 5% accurate Mm. impression of what the film will be or the the show will be. Uh, Because there's got to be, I think, a lot more substance from what we've been told about, you know, the issues of race and racism and uh, Falcon's place with, you know, Captain America and this new wannabe Captain America um, who we know is going to be in it. So it's looking... I think this one perhaps oversells the comedy at the, at the expense of everything else, but I'm also super here for the comedy. So hurrah. Yeah. This got me a bit more on board than the previous ones, but I think you're absolutely right. This is, this is, this is the Marvel show uh, that's, that's coming up that uh, maybe because it feels so close to civil war or winter soldier that it doesn't feel, doesn't have the, the, the shock or the allure of the of the new in a way that WandaVision does and in the way that and I don't think it's gonna be a mystery box show the way that WandaVision mm. is or the way that Loki looks completely and utterly I mean I don't even batshit, know what that yeah. show is gonna be. I'm trying not to use the word batshit too much out of deference to Dracula. Uh, <laughs> but yeah, I mean this 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 got me on board a little bit more. But it's gonna be fascinating to see how these two characters who are entirely defined by their relationship to Steve Rogers, who don't need to be together in a way that Wanda and Vision need to be together because they're a couple. Sam and Bucky are not a couple. They're not even friends. I mean, I mean they are according to the ships. internet they are. Yeah. According <laughs> to the internet they are. Yes. Uh, but they're not they're not they're not 
the only thing that links them is their friendship with Steve Rogers. So after Endgame, they could entirely go their own way, separate ways, and no one would bat an eyelid. So what is it that is binding them together in this? I'm fascinated to find that out. And yes, mm. you're right. Um, hopefully, because I thought the first trailer of the banter and that was fairly weak, but it was much better than this. The couples counseling thing where the, the, the couples counselor was going, Jesus Christ, look at you two. Are you just staring contest now? <laughs> Honestly, get it together. So, you know, if it's a buddy comedy in which both of them are the, the dickhead, because that dynamic always works nicely, <laughs> uh, then yes, I'm, I'm all for it. Happy days. That'll be on uh, Disney Plus about three seconds, I think, after WandaVision finishes. <laughs> two weeks. We've got a two-week gap. What are we going to do for two weeks? What? Oh, this is unacceptable. Well, we're going to do a four-hour podcast speculating about what we might see <laughs> and what we have just seen in WandaVision. I don't want WandaVision to end. No. No, and yet I'm excited to find out what the end is. Mm. You do yeah. want WandaVision to end because otherwise you end up with Lost. That's a good point. Okay, carry okay. on. Yeah. But I don't even care about the mystery side of it. I just want to watch Wanda and Vision in a little little house with, you know, making terrible one-liners with a, with a <laughs> fake canned laughter. That's what I want to see. I want to see that. They're a newlywed couple, just moved to town. Regular <laughs> husband and wife. <laughs> That, God, that's so typical, isn't it? Just all these Marvel fans who just want comedy and one-liners. Oh, oh sorry. Oh, I'm into much more serious comic book movies, thanks very much, as which I'm I, sure Helen. we'll be getting to soon. As am I. <laughs> oh, God. <laughs> Where's my cuisine? Oh, no. <laughs> I mean, why would people sign up for the Sporter Specials now? You're just giving Uh, away the store. Oh, hey! Speaking of giving away the store, no, let's do it. Let's do it afterwards. Let's do it. Well, we'll do it at the end. But good segue, Helen. I see what you're doing there. Uh, In other Marvel news this week, uh, Blade has a writer. The revamped, rekindling of Blade has got a writer. Stacey Osei-Kafour is going to write the script for that. Um, I lobbied for the role, but uh, I was just basically doing variations on some of the fuckers are always trying to ice skate uphill. And I was told that apparently the script needed more than that. Needed things like character development and action scenes. And I was just... Doing variations in that. So. Oh, I, I mean, that's that's a very disappointing. I'm furious. Course. What about yeah. some furious. bastards are always trying to skateboard a slight incline? <laughs> <laughs> that's, oh, you've read his script. Yeah. yeah. Oh, I see. Yeah. Yeah. It was a it was a terrible script. <laughs> Thanks, Ben. <laughs> Thank you. Uh, so that's exciting, uh, but not as exciting for me as the news that the already swollen and thick cast mm. of David Leach's Bullet Train has become even more swollen and thick with uh, bursting with A-list stardom goodness. What's happening? With the news is Sandra Bullock has signed on to appear in the cast of this movie, which if you wow. don't know, we've talked about it a lot on the uh, the show recently, is David Leach's new movie starring Brad Pitt as uh, an assassin who is on a train full of assassins uh, mm-hmm. in Japan. It's a bullet train. <laughs> so it's a Shinkansen in Japan. Yeah, It's going really, really fast. And I think, as far as I could tell, the world's greatest assassins are all in this train for reasons, <laughs> trying to kill someone, presumably Brad Pitt, for other reasons. And the cast of this thing is, uh, sorry, Draculeer, it's batshit insane. I mean, Sandra Bullock on a speeding form of public transport. 
Who's not up for that? Come on. Are they going to rename it Bullock Train? No, it's going to be the train that couldn't slow down. But also had assassins. (laughs) Super here for it. This is an incredible cast and uh, yeah, it looks really, really fun. Who else is in the cast then? Let's let's just go through this cast. Uh, If you don't want to know the cast, just skip the next 10 minutes of this podcast because I'm going to be (laughs) listing them all. It is absolutely incredible. So she's going to be joining the likes of... uh, uh, oh, now, hang on. Has she replaced Lady Gaga? What? Has no. she replaced Lady Gaga? Because the last we heard was, was that Lady Gaga was in it, but uh, she's not on this, this cast list I'm seeing now. But let's presume that Lady Gaga is also in this film. Yes, please. So Joey King, Aaron mm-hmm. Taylor Johnson, Brian Tyree Henry, Sazie Beats, Michael Shannon, Logan Lerman, Massey Oka, Andrew Koji, and of course, William Bradley Pitt. I mean, my Christ. Yes. Eh, it's okay, I guess. I am it's hyped. Amazing. <laughs> it is. Yeah. Very, very excited about that. So, yes. Uh, and there's also been some other interesting bits of casting, video game related. Jimbo, I'm sure you're all over this. Uh, Jamie Lee Curtis has joined Eli Roth's <laughs> Borderlands movie. <laughs> oh, that's the video game casting yeah, that James that's is excited about? News. Oh, is no, that no, no, no. The, uh, the video game news of this week, and let's be honest, the entire subject of monday's pilot tv podcast is the fact that they have cast joel and ellie for the last of us tv series and i am resoundingly here for it because fucking liana mormont uh bella ramsey is going to be playing ellie and mando himself mr pedro pascal is going to be playing joel this is the fucking way people this is the way (laughs) i could not be more down for this if i tried this of course based on the naughty dog video game last of us and of course it's sequel last of us part two Greatest games ever made. This is going to be amazing. All other media should just stop. I mean, <laughs> okay. No, I, I, I'm very excited by this casting because I have had Last of Us explained to me, and it Jane does look right. You, in fact. Well, no, actually, Ali Plum took me through it. Oh. Um, Plum explained. Yeah, Plum explained. Um, and this this does look and and feel like the right casting. Um, it also expands the Pedro Pascal Singer Father cinema, <laughs> cinematic universe, yes. which is which is also wonderful news. Um, and. I just have to remind you that no game movie based on an actual game has ever been more than really a three-star movie. So Yeah, but this is this is like the way the that one. she could kill the Witch King because she was no man, and this can break the curse because it is no film. Like, that's how this is going to okay. happen. Okay, mm-hmm. I believe in you. major, but it ain't no, it ain't no man. man. <laughs> I'm excited for this. <laughs> Turn around. <laughs> How does everything come back to Predator? I'm excited for this because I um I love horror films and horror shows, but horror games really scare me and I tend not to play them uh, because mm. I find them too intense. And I know I feel very much that I'm missing out on the story of yes. The Last of Us. And this is the this is the thing, right? So many video games, they don't translate well to the screen because it's it's more about how those games play and how they operate than what the story and what the characters are. Like yeah. the I like that recent Tomb Raider film, but the, the strange thing about Uncharted, the long road to get Uncharted to the screen, is like Uncharted was always Indiana Jones, but a game. And so you translate it back to a film and it's like Indiana Jones, but not Indiana Jones, which is not that exciting. Whereas having like The Last of Us seems to be very, very much about narrative and about character and about emotional stories. And it feels like there is a lot to translate there. 
A hundred percent. I think weirdly the biggest obstacle for this series is that Ashley Johnson and Troy Baker's performances in those games are so exquisite. It's going to be really hard to separate the narrative from those characters and those performances and watching them done by two great actors as Bella Ramsey and Pedro Pascal are is going to feel a little bit disjointing. So it's going to require a bit of a mental leap to kind of leave, you know, Ashley and Troy behind. But uh, but oh, I can't wait to see this. There was a rumour going around before this was announced, there was rumour going around that Mahershala Ali was actually going to be playing Joel. And that really got me thinking. I thought, that's a really interesting yeah. choice. He I love Mahershala Ali. Yeah. I, think he would, I don't think he looks grizzled enough. Do you know what I mean? Like there's a, there's a grizzled, older feeling to Joel for me. You can probably like, he grizzle very, him up. You could probably grizzle him up. Yeah, Is absolutely. Is that the word? Yeah. He could, be, he could possibly be grizzled. Um, I had thought for a while that Idris Elba would have been brilliant casting for this. He has the grizzliness. Mm. Um, but but yeah, but Pedro Pascal, absolutely. I wonder if he'll take his helmet off at any point during the show. <laughs> Lol. And just to round off this, this section, uh, I just want to give a couple of quick plugs, if you will uh, allow me. Another shout out to our fantastic podcast that we did with Edgar Wright and Quentin Tarantino, where we got them together and they'd nattered for three hours about all sorts of stuff, but mainly British cinema um, and films I hadn't heard of. And that's available right now in your regular pod feed. Uh, and the Edgar Wright curated issue of Empire Magazine, in which he and a bunch of the most famous directors in Hollywood talk about the cinema going moments that energized them growing up. Uh, that's available for one more week before it is replaced by the next issue of Empire. That's how magazines work, folks. It's a very cold and unsentimental world. Uh, so if you haven't got your hands on that issue, it is a wonderful, wonderful issue. Then check it out. All good and evil news agents and digital news agents as well. And the last thing I'm going to say is that uh, the Spoiler Special subscription channel is uh, receiving a bit of a glue up as well, uh, uh, to use Helen's phrase from a few minutes ago. Uh, so people will know that about a year ago, we launched our own spoiler special subscription channel, taking all our spoiler specials, the archive that we have cultivated over the last eight years or so, we put them behind a paywall, and we've been really, really delighted with how much you guys have supported that. Um, but we decided to take things to the next level. And the next level usually means in these things a price increase. For example, I discovered that Netflix are putting up their price when I got an email the other day. How delightful. Disney Plus's price recently went up as well. We have gone the other way, folks. We have gone the other way. We have decided, as of right now, we're shifting to a different podcast hosting platform. Um, if you are a subscriber... To the Spoiler Special channel, you will have received an email with instructions on how to switch over. Sadly, it's not something we can do automatically for you. Um, but if you haven't subscribed before, then now is the time, folks. Now is the time because the price has dropped to a delicious £2.99 per month or £32.99 for the year. So you can sign up right now. Go to the Empire website. What's the URL there, Jimbo? Do you know? Well, if you go to empireonline.com slash spoiler special changes, that will tell you everything you need to know if you're already a subscriber. If you do not already subscribe, you can go to empireonline.com slash spoiler specials to find out everything you need to know or jump straight to empire.supportingcast.f. Um, Sportycast being our new hosting platform mm -hmm. for the spoiler specials. Everyone who ex anyone who currently subscribes to the old spoiler specials, which are hosted by Glow, uh, you will find if you're an annual subscriber, you get a free year on Sportingcast, regardless regardless of how long was left on your 
on your original subscription. So that can be mm -hmm. lots of free months for you there. Uh, and if you are a monthly subscriber, then you can switch over to supporting cast at the end of your current billing period at the new lower price. So do come on in. The water is lovely. The Spoiler Special uh, Archive will give you access. Signing up will give you access to, where are we now? I think we're about 156 Spoiler Specials in the archive at the moment. So we've got everything we're doing, weekly Spoiler Specials dedicated to the big Disney Plus uh, shows. So we do weekly Mandalorian Spoiler Specials when that's on. We're in the middle of a big old WandaVision tear. Uh, also, that'll then be replaced by Falcon and the Winter Soldier. That'll then be replaced by Loki. <laughs> that'll then be replaced end. by something else until we all die. <laughs> Uh, but there's also you get the entire archive of everything in there so you get the Avengers Endgame spoiler specials with the Russo brothers and Kevin Feige and Marcus McFeely you get the epic Mission Impossible Rogue Nation of Fallout spoiler specials with Chris McQuarrie set aside a full day for Lowe's if you can I'm not kidding either you get hey, who else do you get you get Quentin Tarantino you get Ryan Reynolds you get Kathy Yan you get Jordan Peele you get Edgar Wright you get more Chris McQuarrie talking about Jack Reacher all the way back to 2012. Um, uh, you get Taika Waititi, who, we, we, Sam Mendes. So many spoiler specials going back to 2012. We're really, really proud of them. And we would love to have you on board listening to them as well. And even though big movies are being pushed back and pushed back and pushed back, we're still bringing you a guaranteed minimum of two spoiler specials a month, but it's never it two spoiler specials a month. It's, it's, always, <laughs> it's always more. Uh, and films coming up that are getting the spoiler special treatment over the next couple of weeks include Synchronic. We've got a great interview with the directors, uh, Justin Benson and Aaron Moorhead on that. And... Uh, later on this afternoon, I'm going to be talking to Rick Roman Wall, the director of Greenland, which is a movie I deeply, deeply love. Watched it again last night, and I'll be grilling him about that movie uh, also. So £2.99 a month, that is the price of a coffee, that is the price of a pint, that is the price of a small car. So a really small car, like a toy car. So, oh, um, okay, right. <laughs> so if you want to sign up, please do. And that is it for the shameless plug-in. It is time now for our second and final guest this week. Uh, we're big fans of Juno Temple here at Empire ever since she first burst onto the scene in the mid-2000s and the likes of Atonement and Centrinia's movies and the other Bolin girl. Uh, she's a fine and versatile actress and she displays those powers to full effect in the double apple whammy of Ted Lasso, my beloved Ted Lasso, mm. where she is oh, a known beloved Ted Lasso. Mm. Uh, I saw it first. Uh, where she's a known nonsense <laughs> model who has a galvanizing effect on certain members of the AFC Richmond squad. And the movie Palmer, which debuted on Apple TV Plus last week and in which she plays opposite another JT, Justin Timberlake, as a mother struggling with drug addiction. Uh, I spoke to her last week on the Dread Zoom, but nevertheless, it sounds pretty good in this one and uh, had a great old time, although we do get into some pretty heavy subject matter towards the end. So perhaps be advised. Anyway, here we go. Me talking to Judah Temple. Do please enjoy. We are delighted to be joined on the Emperor podcast by the star of Palmer, Juno Temple. How are you, Juno? Oh, I'm doing good. I'm happy to be here talking to you. Oh, likewise. Happy to be talking to you and have you talking to me. Yeah. Does that work? That works. Even that though works. it's through a screen, it feels nice, right? It does. You know, this is the this is what passes for human contact these days. I know. <laughs> so if I break down crying at any point, <laughs> <laughs> I'll comfort you cyberly. Yeah. <laughs> precisely. Precisely. Yeah. They should have that. They should have the computers that have hands that come out, like you attach you hands inside you. your computer. Yeah. Yeah. That's. Uh, I definitely think that's been interesting this year. Really learning how much human uh, hugs 
are they I, I know that they release something in humans called oxytocin which is literally a little tiny dose of happiness and so mm-hmm. not having hugs is something that I definitely have really felt the absence of yeah absolutely I mean uh, you know I, I'm, I'm very lucky I'm I'm here in my house with my wife and uh you know we we, we get we get we get hugs we get hugs you know per, as per our contract i'm allowed one a week one a week, one a week. Uh, yeah one a week what about, it's what, well i think that needs to be changed i think you need to up the ante <laughs> i think big time i'd be one i'd be one to one an hour i want every five minutes that's what but we maybe need, that's but... why i'm in my apartment alone <laughs> i'm too demanding <laughs> yes because you have contracts dictating yeah. the amount of hugs you get in a relationship yeah. um but are you are, are you at the moment are you in um you're not obviously on set but you're in london filming Shooting Ted Lasso. season two yeah which again talk about an interesting kind of having such a love for a cast that you're working with and having such an exciting moment with it all you know with uh coming back for season two and then also being just the gift of working right now feels amazing and then also the amazing recognition that we've just had for the show with the nominations and stuff it's mm. like really cool but you can't hug any of your classmates <laughs> unless say. it's on camera unless the camera's rolling you know and um so it's that's quite there's a lot of kind of <sighs> body wiggling to sort of create a, a a huge amount of love in a room you see these kind of new movements that mean like i love you i love us i love this it's like this kind of yeah new existence of wriggling i think but i uh yeah i feel really lucky to be um to be working also to be being taken care of in a way where like it's probably the safest place i could be in my life i'm being tested three times a week making sure that i'm not sick that i'm not spreading it to anybody and and um i get to play keely and she's such a joy of a person to be playing and to be putting on the high heeled shoes of because she just fills me with a lot of light and and that's a really nice thing in in this time of life to be playing a person that's filled with light because it can be a bit dark, can't it? It can be. It, yeah. it really, it really can be. I mean, that yes. show, I, I love that show. And I, I know we are here to talk about Palmer and we will talk about Palmer, I assure yeah. you. But a darker if I can, one. A but darker with a one. Light, a light, with a light message, I think. A message of proper starlight, actually. Absolutely. There's a, there's a light at the end of Palmer and for once it's not a train. Uh, that's yeah. that's coming towards you. It's it's no it's exactly. Got, it's like a universe yeah. of twinkling stars. I think it ends up being <laughs> it really yeah, is. yeah. Yes. Whereas 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 Ted is being it's like being hugged by light. That's that's what that show is. Uh, yeah. I, I adore that show so much. And uh, Brett Goldstein is a friend of the podcast. We've actually been I've been in his he? podcast. He's I been know, in he's this shooting one shooting today. He's oh, is a, he? I I love him so much. I, yeah, he's a special 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 part. I mean the whole cast actually is oh, everyone the crew every, it's a really really joyous job actually really yeah. amazing job and uh yeah i imagine i imagine season two you know following up on season one and you know, the highs of that must be must be tricky but i can't yeah, wait there's a fear it's also it's the first time i've ever gone back to a, a character again it's, i've never done that before there was a moment where it was going to hopefully happen with vinyl and then that got ripped away and my heart was quite broken by that so i've been a bit nervous to sign on to a tv show since because i really you know i uh I, I really care, like a lot of actors do, I think. And I was really heartbroken that that character was taken away so abruptly. I was like, oh, no, that's not okay. Um, <laughs> and so it's interesting coming back to a character and coming back to a universe because it does feel like no time is left or no time has passed, you know, which I always equate to a really great friendship when you have true, true best, best friends in your life. 
when you haven't seen them for a, a you know, long amount of time or a short amount of time, it, time doesn't, doesn't matter. Do you know what I mean? And it sort of feels like that coming back to Ted Lasso, which I guess makes sense because it was a very happy place to be. And, and even though a whole year has gone by and some change, you know, it's like, wow, it feels like it was yesterday. And uh, that's been really, really marvellous. Oh, well, I cannot wait. Uh, say hello to Brett for us uh, as I will. well. I'll next, definitely next do that. Wiggle in this general direction on our yeah, behalf. Yeah, I will. I'll give a wiggle from you. Yeah, definitely. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, so was Palmer the last thing that you shot before lockdown or were you working on Ted Lasso before lockdown? No, um, I finished. I had a, actually, this was an interesting experience. I wrapped Ted Lasso. So playing Keely, this is, you know, bundle of light and... I wrapped at 9 p.m. on a Wednesday and had to be on a flight at 9 a.m. on a Thursday and had 24 hours to let go of Keely and become Shelly. And I had a layover in Atlanta and went to the smoking lounge for about okay. an hour. Yeah. That did it. Definitely <laughs> did it. <laughs> so Juno Definitely. Keely walks in, Juno Shelly walks out. Exactly. I mean, it was great. I was like, Perfect. I smell perfect. I'm ready. My I'm, I've gone a little bit grey. Like everything's perfect now. Um, it was a yeah. It was a good a good switch off from one character and opening to another. But I uh, yeah. I I also think that's what's so extraordinary about being an actor is getting to really kind of explore humanity. I feel like it's going to university for life a lot. You know, you go and you learn so much about all different walks of life and all different human emotions and human battles and and you empathize with it on such a a deep level that that I think you kind of yeah you feel so deeply for for humanity as an actor or I do anyway and yeah. I feel very lucky to get to explore different characters like that and I mean that was definitely an example of two very different creatures that I felt very lucky to to get to dip my toes in to very close together because it felt like a real kind of education. That's wild. Uh, that's absolutely wild. So what was your first day on, on Palmer Lynn? What was the first thing you had to shoot? Okay. This, the, yeah. The scene where I uh, come and tell Sam that I think you should stay with Palmer. Oh my God. <laughs> yes. So we started with the end of the movie for me, but that was also, I remember Fisher calling me being like, I'm so sorry, but this is the way the schedule, it's the only way we can make it work. And I was like, bring it on, babe, let's do it. And I was so nervous. <laughs> that I think, you know, nerves, I, I still get them all the time. I mean, I, because I, I just want to get it right. I want to play this character in a way that people are like, yeah, I, I, I believe she's this person. And, and um, so those nerves normally channel into something, I think, bigger than you when it comes to actually shooting a scene and you use them in a way that every time you think they're going to ruin everything and then every time they actually become your best friend, I think for me and uh so day one having that kind of bundle of nerves was really helpful because can you imagine how nervous Shelley would have been doing that with her child in that moment and and how um it makes me kind of emotional just thinking about it you know it's like having to go and say to your child I can't be your mother (laughs) because I can't figure my life out right now and I think that's um yeah, a pretty profound thing. That's what actors are in a way. They're they're empathy machines mm-hmm. uh, in a way, which is I think is one of the reasons why they are so tactile. Actors I've observed, actors I've known, they 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 get it. They understand humans on you know humanity on a on a really 
deep level and a lot of it's instinctive as well a lot of it's instinctual yeah it's and it's interesting because then i find that i'm not so great at real life <laughs> you know I find <laughs> real life i i can be quite intense i guess because i i want that kind of uh intense learning that you get from a job all the time i feel like my mind is always hungry for that and so sometimes i have to remind myself it's important to enjoy real life <laughs> yeah and 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 uh live in it for exactly what it is and i think in a weird way, yeah, Palmer was kind of an amazing script to read for that, especially with this extraordinary character, Sam, who is a a, a, a child that has such an, a, an acute um, self-awareness and self-enjoyment um, that is, uh, I think, quite inspirational to any kind of age, you know? I've, I've felt, and, and I think Ryder as a, as a, little tiny human on the planet is such an amazing amazing creature who is not dissimilar to sam he really loves being him and he really loves enjoying people around him and telling them that he's doing that you know and it's yeah. such a beautiful thing to be around that it's so genuine and so honest and so i i, I like i find it, he was such an interesting and interested little person to be around and i felt yeah very proud to be playing his movie mother you know i was like it was also the first time i'd ever played a mother on camera i was like well you just really set the bar high my friend for anybody else because i'm only getting older so i'm only going to be playing more moms you know and um i think that uh yeah i it was really a, uh, an extraordinary experience watching um rider play sam because they were very similar actually that scene where he's watching the fairy princess show and palmer Justin, who I get, I thought was so brilliant in the movie, so, so raw, so brave. And, um, uh, but that scene when he says, do you see any boys on the show? And he's like, no, but what, what do you, what do you think that means? Like, well, I could be the first. And it's such an extraordinary delivery of that line. I was like, yeah, yeah I should say that to myself every day. I can be the first. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. Yeah, yeah. I was like, no that was the moment where I burst into tears actually in the movie. I was like, wow, that hits home. Brilliant. Was it like that reading the script as well? I imagine was it was it a script that, that 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 got you? Definitely. Oh my god. And I, you know, I was I'm lucky enough. It's my second time working with Justin, and I would do it over and over and over again. I cannot sing his praises enough as an actor. He's just such a giving actor and cares so much. And I, I really love working with him because he really likes to kind of push your buttons when it's not his coverage even. And I think being that giving as an actor is something that I am so excited by. Like the scene where um, he comes over to Shelley's trailer and offers money for Sam. And it was my coverage. We'd already done Justin's coverage. And he decided to burst into tears off camera. And yeah, that's yeah, the take they use because it literally made me go, don't you look at me like, don't fucking look at me like that. Get out of my house. Get out. It was like, this, <laughs> and we went cut and I was like, fuck you. He was like, fuck yeah. I'm so glad I did that. I was like, oh, I love you. That was brilliant. Oh my God. Wow. Holy shit. Yeah. It was like this. And he's like that, you know, he's very spontaneous. And I think that's also an example of just inhabiting a role where you can do that. You can really play with the space and, and, you know, Acting is about reacting, isn't it? It's about, because that's what life is. You can't predict anyone else's reactions. You can't control them, but you can just give to people so that they can then react accordingly or whatever. And I think Justin really brings that to a set as an actor. And, and um, yeah, I was so proud of, of, 
of being a part of this film and of both of their performances. And they're just like, I thought it was, they were profound in it together. And I, and I really, um, it was, it's a really cool thing having been on the set and observed that genuine friendship between two very different people and then getting to see it on film because it was, it was genuine, you know? And, and, and I think it was, yeah, really, really cool. There's something really interesting about him. I'm not entirely sure there's a question in this, but there's there's something really interesting about the way that he's he's aging on screen. Mm. In that, you know, I didn't see Justin Timberlake no, in this performance. I agree. I I didn't either. And I, it's funny too because I in between the two jobs uh, that we've done together, I did go and see him live. I went and saw one of his incredible music shows, <laughs> and uh, I went with a mutual friend of ours actually, and we went backstage afterwards to say hi. And I literally stuck my hand out and was like, "Hi, I'm Juno. It's really nice to meet you." He's like, "The fuck are you doing?" I was like, "I don't know this, Justin. I do not. This is a different. That what the hell? Hello. That was that was bloody good, wasn't it?" <laughs> <laughs> and and I think it's again I take my hat off to that because he's just such an, a true creative and that there are these different sides to him and there is you know the Justin that is a musician but then there's the Justin as is the actor and they are they are different and I think this movie hopefully you know I hope lots of people see it and see what an extraordinary change that he can make to himself and he can disappear completely, you know? And, and, and uh, yeah, I thought it was such a brave performance. Because this is, I guess, going back to the idea of, of empathy as well, because Shelley in the wrong hands could absolutely have been a caricature mm. and could absolutely, you know, have been the villain of the piece as well. And I imagine that was something that, that both you and Fisher and even Justin uh, well, were, were keen to avoid. Well, I was going to say, actually, the, the fact that Justin reached out to me with this script, I was quite, I was, uh, I mean, yeah, I was like, wow, okay. This guy thinks I can act. Cool. This is quite the role. Holy <laughs> <laughs> hell, better bring it. Jeez. Yeah. Um, so, I and and, you know, I have I, I really did empathize with her and I just completely understood this idea of being a woman who is still a child. And that last scene that we shot first kind of set that up for me in the sense that I got to plant it on screen immediately that when Shelley went to see Sam that day, she was the child and he was the grown up. And that's why she can't be his mother, you know, because he needs to be allowed to be a child. and allowed to grow up exactly how he's supposed to and not and and I think you know then also reading the script and that beat where Justin oh Palmer gets taken away in the police car which was such an extraordinary moment in the film but reading it just on the page and being a mother that witnesses her child run after the car like that but has the moment of realizing if I was in that cop car they wouldn't run and I think that was a very profound beat for me to be aware of and and think about because again the selfless thing to do is to then go I need to I'm suffocating this person and I'm not letting them spread their wings and and um and yeah I mean each beat for her I found so important actually um because she has such a beautiful little arc in the film I think and um, each beat was very important 
and each I really thought it out and it was yeah I, Fisher and I talked because I did you know I wanted to say I wanted to figure out like so what drugs is she on like what is she what what do we think she's fucking with here like what level are we talking <laughs> and, um, and I thought and Fisher also thought that it was a crystal meth vibe you know and uh, doing intense research on that was fucking devastating man it's like poor um because it's such an epidemic in the world really but it's a big problem in um america i actually it's a really interesting documentary on youtube about it in about how all the crystal meth that comes through fresno in california it's heartbreaking and but then also doing research to what it does to a human you know it's a drug that fuels you with this kind of sexual superhero energy that you're like this you could tackle anything and or then also fuck anything you know it's like this crazy attitude that that it gives you and this it is so hyper addictive and it steals your years of your life so in moments you know it literally steals them and um it's such a hard drug to kick and you know if you were to drink it it would be it would kill you instantly that's another thing that's so bizarre about it and the paranoia that it creates and the lack of sleep and like one of the side effects i read was that people are convinced they can smell their brain rotting oh wow yes that was a consistent meth uh, um like meth mites so people think there's bugs in their face which is why they have all these sores and yeah so the intensive research into it was really quite brutal and you know, it was interesting too being in, uh, we were just outside New Orleans shooting there. And I remember going to a gas station one night and there's definitely a tweaker in the gas station and obviously wasn't high at that moment. And the lack of eye contact that he wanted to make, I found absolutely fascinating and brought that into the scene with Sam and Palmer when Shelley first comes back after having been gone on what we decided was a meth binge. And she comes back and obviously I was like, I need to look really scary. Like I need to frighten my child. And I thought I looked fucking terrifying. You know, I look like a bat in it. It's really <laughs> scary. But it was very important to me to try and make as little eye contact with Palmer as possible. But then also have this attitude of when I left, my son loved me. He's my best friend. And so when I come back, I need him to love me and I need him to be my best friend because he's going to fix me right now. And having this kind of suffocating energy of like, I need you. Where are you? What are you doing? Come home with me. What's happening now? This kind of, but obviously when I left, I left an eight or seven year old son of mine. Yeah. And I left him in the wind. I didn't even say bye. And yeah. so the, the expectation of being a mother and returning and your child just, loving you the way they did when you left is selfish and naive, you know, yeah. but yeah. is a truth when you're in the throes of an addiction. Yeah. You know? Yeah, absolutely. It's a, uh, it's devastating stuff to watch. Uh, but now you're back in the warm, welcoming embrace of Ted Lasso and <laughs> the wiggling embrace, <laughs> the wiggling, the wiggling embrace the wiggles, of, yeah. <laughs> of Ted Lasso, Richmond till I die, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. Um, uh, Juno, it's been an absolute pleasure talking to you. Uh, yeah, thanks so you much. Too. Really appreciate it. Stay safe, man. Get some more hugs. <laughs> I'll try. I'll try. I'll try and up at the two a week. Two yeah, a week. We'll see it. how it goes. Thanks yeah. a lot. Take I care. wish you luck. 
Thank bye. you. Bye-bye. Okay, so that was Juno Temple. We will be talking about Palmer in just a few minutes because now it is time to delve deep into what is out at your Sofaplex this weekend. And uh, launching on Wednesday last two days ago is the latest uh, Paul Greengrass joint reuniting him with Tom Hanks a few years after Captain Phillips. And this is News of the World, not the tale of the now-closed tabloid newspaper, but something altogether different, isn't it, Jimbo? It is. Christopher, uh, this is uh, Tom Hanks playing the excellently named Captain Kidd. Uh, he's a Jefferson former con- Kyle Kidd. Indeed. What a name. Uh, he's a former Confederate soldier and he's making his way in the South in the aftermath of the Civil War. Uh, specifically in this case, by riding from town to town and reading the news to people, like a kind of cross between, I guess, CNN and Jack and Nori. Anyway. <laughs> During one trip, he comes across a dead body and a trashed wagon and an abandoned child called Johanna, played by a rather brilliant uh, Helena Zengel. Uh, And she's been abducted by natives as a baby and now only speaks Kiowa. And he sets out to reunite her with her family. Now, this so this is this is based on the novel of the same name by Paulette Giles. But honestly, like for me, like this, the thing that struck me about this is it feels less literary and more televisual. Like it's a really episodic film. I think due to the nature of the fact that he moves from town to town and there's a different event in each place that he goes to. So to me, like, it really felt reminiscent of a condensed series of television with them getting into all these adventures. And I don't mean that in any way as a criticism. I think this film is a lot less anxiety-inducing than Paul Greengrass's uh, regular work. Um, but it's beautiful. It's got a real dignity to it. I think Hanks is, you know, is great. And I think, well, as you'd expect, he is a man with all the layers. But he's like, he's been traumatised by what he's seen done during the war. He's running away from his past. He's suppressing his feelings. It's a big old road trip movie with a big old heart at its centre. Uh, and he kind of slowly coaxes Joanna out of her shell and she's kind of healing the wounds in his heart. So it's rather lovely. Mm. Uh, a bit of a Lost of Us vibe going on there. Huh. Um, I thought some of the encounters felt maybe a touch contrived. Like there's a bit where three ex-Confederates try to buy Johanna and there's a, a confrontation around that which felt a little bit on the nose. But... You know, I, I really like this. I thought I like I really like the parallels to kind of like modern America. You know, th- this is set in a time when the wounds are very, very deep between the defeated South and kind of the Northern Blues, as they call them, who they see as an, uh, sort of an occupying oppressive force. And there's a real palpable resentment, I think, between those two sides that really echoes the the hyperpartisanship, you know, in, in you know the post-Trump world, and frankly, the racist undertones that kind of tie it all together. Um, but yeah, like I say, I really enjoyed this. It's heartwarming. It's it's a very charming film. It's got a strong emotional core um i don't think it's the most plot heavy film you'll ever see but i'm also not sure that it needed to be either so yes news of the world yeah it's re- i really liked it i think um she's fantastic helena's engel mm. is, is really really good as johanna and there is um there is there are modern kind of resonances in it i, I, th- I think you touched on but you know the, the the importance of news getting through of of accurate news getting yeah. through and the 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 power that that can have in people's lives and the way that it can change what you're willing to accept in your life i think is really really timely um it will go over the heads of the people for whom it would be most timely i suspect but it is there all the same and and that that's what it felt to that's where it felt to me like a paul greengrass film in a way that for much of the running time it felt less Less like his usual style, basically, but I, I, it was still a style I very much liked. It's not quite, um, it's not quite up there with the Cohen's True Grit in terms of my favourite westerns about old men and, and young women, but um, I did still really enjoy it. 
Yeah, I thought it was terrific. Uh, absolutely terrific. And, um, yeah, echo what everyone said. It, uh, it's uh, a more subtle movie, uh, a more uh, emotional movie openly and warmly, I think, than we perhaps, might perhaps be used to from Paul Greengrass, who, as I said last week, you know, his movies are two-hour panic attacks, usually. And they have that, that, that sense of veracity that very much, you know, they're very much about documenting things often that happened or feel like they, they could have happened. And and this is a bit more classical in this approach. You know, the camera's locked down. They, you know, it's a bit more about wide, you know, open, wide open fistas. And Helena Sankel is great. But we talked, I said this in last week's show. In fact, I think I said this to Paul Greengrass that, uh, in fact, no, I think he said it to me that we're in danger of taking Tom Hanks for granted. Mm-hmm. Which is why he wasn't in the awards conversation for this performance, and he could argue that he should have been because it's, yeah. you know, it's really difficult to take someone who is essentially decent and make them compelling and watchable and reward your investment in them, and he absolutely does that with with Captain Kid. Yeah, it's a really good film uh, on Netflix right now. Four stars we gave this. Four stars then for news of the world. And debuting on PVOD this week is a movie that I have to confess. I'm gonna I'm gonna start this off with a little preamble. I have to confess I was terrified about this movie. It is Barb and Star Go to Fista Del Mar. And it's the movie that is the follow-up as screenwriters for Kristen Wiig and Annie Mamolo, who is her comedy partner and writing partner. Uh, it's a follow-up to Bridesmaids. A Bridesmaids uh, opened a y- 10 years ago this year, guys. 10 and years. Ten, 10 years. 10, 10, 10 years. 10 years ago this year, uh, Bridesmaids opened. Uh, they were nominated for an Oscar for the screenplay. And this is their follow-up as writing partners. And it is, shall we say, slightly different tonally and conceptually <laughs> than Bridesmaids. Uh, but I was really worried about this because I was excited about it when it was announced. The title alone made me laugh. Annie Mamolo also stars in this. Uh, they're two best friends uh, who go on holiday to this place called Fista Del Mar. I'm really excited about it. The trailer came out about a month ago. And I thought the trailer looked pretty interesting and funny. But there's also a sense that this movie has been buried. Completely and utterly buried. It just suddenly appeared out of nowhere this week. It's like, oh, Barb and Star go to Fista Del Mar is coming out on Friday. Is it? Oh, shit. Right, we better watch it then. And then we were told about the embargo. And the embargo for this movie, folks, is 2 a.m. on Friday morning, the day it opens. Usually that is a sign of a real stinkeroo. So before, I'm going to let Ben talk about the movie now and set it all up. But I will say this say this to you now, folks. This is not a stinkeroo. This is an absolute delight. Why the hell has this movie been buried? Ben, tell us about Barb and Star Good Fista Del Mar. Uh, I will. I mean, you said that this is a very totally different film to Bridesmaids, by which you mean it is absolutely insane and all over the place in a very, very joyous way. Barb is played by Annie Mumolo, Star is played by Kristen Wiig. They are two best friends who uh, sleep in the same room together and talk to each other like this all of the time. And they kind of talk over each other all the time. And (laughs) their favourite thing to say is, what? Like, what? (laughs) But if you put an E in there somewhere, I don't quite know where you'd put the E, but it's like a what? Rather like a than whetstone. a word. <laughs> yes. Uh, and they are two uh, two best friends who 
lose their job, uh, feeling despondent. They're two kind of crackpot 40-somethings, and they end up going on a holiday to the Vista Del Mar Resort in Florida, where at the same time, a (laughs) supervillain is plotting (laughs) some kind of attack involving killer mosquitoes, and Barb and Star kind of get sucked into uh, trying to stop this scheme. Uh, And I think that tells you everything you need to know about the viewpoint of this film. You need to explain uh, Jamie Dornan plays a lovelorn assassin. Yes, who is in love with the supervillain who, as soon as she stepped on screen, I was like, that's Kate Blanchett. They got Kate Blanchett with the budget for this film. I, I was like, and that's Tilda Swinton. Yeah, it took me five minutes to realise it is also Kristen Wiig in yeah. a wig. Yes. <laughs> um, and yes, Jamie Dornan is in love with uh, Kristen Wiig's supervillain, uh, but she gives him no commitment and he doesn't quite know where he stands, but he is in charge of pulling off this <laughs> mosquito mission. So <laughs> he is trying to do everything he can to make sure it goes ahead to get the, um, the love and attention that he craves. And... I mean, this film is absolutely batshit, and it has that sense of real freewheeling craziness that you'd normally associate with something like Tim and Eric, or I know some of the films that we've been banding around, I totally agree with things like Hot Rod, or even there was quite a bit of a Step Brothers vibe to me, and that you have these sort of two grown adults playing these very sort of oddball characters who don't necessarily act their age or just seem like they're beamed in from another planet entirely, just running riot, doing crazy things. And this sort of film can very, very easily become a total mess. If it's pure uh, improv, sometimes that just means that scenes go on and on forever or it doesn't know where it's going. This has a lot of scenes in it that you can tell. The two of them, Annie Mumolo and Kristen Wiig, who are both freaking hilarious, just doing whatever they want. But Mm. it is supplemented by all sorts of other gags that feel very planned, that feel thought out, like sequences. Uh, there are, I don't, I'm not going to say too much, but there are musical sequences in this film that are a complete joy. <laughs> there are absolute batshit off the wall ideas in here that I have no idea where they came from. And it, But it hits you in the same way as a sort of, in a Phil Lord and Chris Miller kind of way, you know, going into 21 Jump yes. Street where you're going like, mm-hmm. like is this, what, this 21 Jump Street reboot with Channing Tatum and Jonah Hill? Like, is that going to be any good? And, you know, there's, there's just a moment when you're watching a film like that where it clicks and you're like, oh my God, this is actually really funny. And it's it's zany in a way that manages not to be annoying, but it's just like bursting with creative weirdness in a way that's extremely endearing. It's just a blast. I loved it. Mm-hmm. It took me a couple of minutes, but I I quickly fell in love with this around the same time. It it's it, it is weird and bizarre, and it probably has at least ten percent too much plot, or maybe just too much. But ten <laughs> percent to too much, <laughs> just ten percent too much. But it is just so out there and weird. And I would absolutely compare it to things like Hot Rod. I think it's going to be a bit of a cult hit. I think you know. I think it's going to bring culottes back into fashion. Um, I'm a little disturbed that they're 40-somethings and that this is meant to be a, a typical 40-something because that's not how I see the world. But, you know, m- <laughs> enough respect to all the Barb and Stars out there. And we didn't even talk about Damon Wayans Jr. No, we haven't. I don't think we should because that's, no. that's a character that uh, you, is in you, the film. you have to discover his character. is <laughs> absolutely a character that is in the film. But uh, I love this. I went into this with almost dread um, because of the fact that because of the embargo, and I know we've talked in the podcast before that an embargo like this doesn't always necessarily 
mean that the film is going to be bad, but for the most part, it does. And the fact that something that just came out of nowhere when it should have been a big tentpole release just made me think, oh God, how bad is this thing? And then within about five minutes, I text on our WhatsApp group. I text you guys going, I think I'm 10 minutes in. I've already laughed out loud about five times. And uh, I th- and, then, and then that was followed about 10 minutes later by, guys, I think I'm really, really liking this. And then 10 minutes after that was like, I'm officially in love with this movie. And it, there, was a, there, was a, there was a moment in the movie. I'm not going to, you, you'll know it when you see it, uh, where I just went, okay, I'm on board. I'm on board. Then I stopped texting you guys and just threw myself into the world of, uh, of Bab and Star, uh, who are so sweet and so wonderful wonderfully played by by Kristen Wiig and Annie Mamulo and Jamie Dornan is so funny in this movie as well uh, and I'm glad that he's been able to keep his own Northern Irish accent in this mm-hmm. which is never explained it's, uh, and it's so it's so off the wall and left field and absurdist and surreal it's absolutely up my street and I do wonder the three of us who've seen it here in this little pod booth virtual pod booth we all love it um, and I do wonder if that's going to be the critical consensus. <laughs> I, don't, I, don't I know. have no idea. I think you, <laughs> I you get know. from this film what you bring to it. And I, I don't know. I don't know. I'm looking forward to watching it again because I don't know if this film gets funnier as it goes along or if you just, once you adjust to its rhythm, it really starts to to kind of spin. Um, but I just thought it like the, the longer it went on, the funnier and funnier it got. Um, and there are a couple of other things for, for this one as well. Like a lot of these sorts of films, especially when they have that improvisational quality to a lot of the scenes, sometimes that means that it's just like, we're just plonking the camera here. You go be funny. Yeah. But this film has like, it has a real visual aesthetic. It has a very mm-hmm. specific style <laughs> that extends to the filmmaking as well as the performances, which you don't often get in these types of comedies. Also, mm-hmm. if any other film this year has a better final 15 seconds, I will be shocked because the last 15 seconds of this movie are incredible. <laughs> I, I say you guys have, have, may have sold me on this film. I, I looked at this film and thought this is something I will hate with the fire of a thousand suns. And yet, having heard you all, I feel strangely compelled to see this. What do you call no, it? You'll com- hate it. Com- 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 comedy? Com- comedy? Comedy. Uh, right. No, yes. I can say with absolute certainty, you will hate and loathe this film. <laughs> you will want to burn the negative and hunt everyone involved with right. it down and imprison them. That's what you you will want to do that. And I got a sneaking suspicion that's going to be generally the consensus to this movie, but we all thought it was terrific. Uh, but I have a feeling that it's going to be one of those films that 10 years from now is beloved in a way that Hot Rod is, in a way that MacGruber is uh, as well. And there's going to be a small band of people who were like, we were there at the beginning. We were there at the beginning of the Barb and Star phenomenon. Uh, it's really, really terrific. So props as well, obviously, to Wig and Mamullo for the script. Uh, but props to the director, Josh Greenbaum, who is uh, a real talent to watch. Because most times, Ben's absolutely right. With big comedies like this, it tends to be a case of just plonk the camera there and then capture the people doing their improv thing. But this actually has a real visual, real thoughts behind the visuals. So well done him. I think like MacGruber and stuff, it, it probably would have died on its arse in cinemas if it had a traditional release here. But I'm hoping we can just skip that that 10 years in which it takes for the critical <laughs> reappraisal to happen. And let's just enjoy Barb and Star while it's, while it's here. <laughs> I'm just laughing at bits I remember now. Oh my God. Four stars, Ben, because you're still writing the review as we speak. Yes, it is. Okay. Four stars. Four stars. Four stars then for Barb and Star go to Fist of Del Mar. If you disagree with that, then do write into Ben. Uh, and the last one we're going to talk about this week is Palmer. Hells Bells. Yes, hello. This is the Justin Timberlake <laughs> yes, starring hello. 
drama uh, that actually came out on Apple last week, but we forgot about it. So um, it's directed by Fisher Stevens and Timberlake plays Palmer, Eddie Palmer, who is just getting out of prison after being sent up for what is initially an unspecified crime. And he is remorseful and he is trying to rebuild his life and go on the straight and narrow and everything else. Um, And this is complicated slightly by his next door neighbour. So Juno Temple's Shelley lives next door, is uh, uh, basically struggling with drug addiction, which is obviously a problem because she has a young son, Sam, played by Ryder Allen, who she can't always care for. So Palmer's granny, played by June Squibb, um, often takes the kid in and looks after him and kind of keeps an eye on him and, and just makes sure he's all right. But as time goes on, it becomes clear that basically Palmer is going to have to take a, a, a larger role in this kid's life. And he he and Sam end up sort of forming this kind of tentative bond and beginning to sort of find a new path forward together. But of course, he still has no official role in the kid's life. He is a um, an ex-felon, which is not going to make it easy for him to have any such official role. And the kid um, who is into, you know, fairies and princesses and things like that is a target for bullies in the school, which again is is kind of heartbreaking for for Palmer himself. So it's just it's just a really small scale drama. It's, you know, set against kind mm-hmm. of uh, cloudy skies and and, you know, dripping southern trees and in, you know, small homes and Trailer, trailer homes and everything else. It's the kind of environment we've seen a million times before. It's the kind of story, if I'm honest, we've seen done before. We've seen all these kind of unconventional mentors come out and, look, and help kids to be their better selves. This one is ve- very well acted. I thought the, the cast was really, really good all round. Um, I haven't mm-hmm. mentioned Alicia Wainwright, who plays uh, Sam's teacher, who I thought was really likable and really kind of warm. G- really good people. It's just... Nothing felt massively special about it. It didn't almost justify, you know, being a film in a way. So while I liked it and I thought it was a good character study, I didn't, it, I, I don't know that I'll remember it very well two weeks from now. Yeah, I, I, I agree with that. It's just a solid movie straight down the middle. And I think with with the exception, as you said, Helen, the exception of the, the young boy, hmm. it's nothing really we haven't seen before, but the performances yeah. are good. Yeah. Uh, Temple's not in it an awful lot, but you know she's very, very important to the to the her absence is very important to the story. Mm-hmm. Um, and Timberlake is really, really good. As I said in the interview with Juno Temple, you know there's not uh, an ounce of Justin Timberlake, the, the megastar, in this performance. You know, it's he, he's aged up a little bit. Mm-hmm. He's looking more interesting and more rugged. His face is filling in and looking a bit older. Um, you know, still obviously a handsome guy, but oh, yeah, you know, he's got sure. some character in the in that face now. It, he's a really interesting movie star, you know, judged uh, purely on his acting choices. This is a guy who, I guess, doesn't need the money, but he must have been offered some of these big kind of blockbuster roles, and he doesn't really seem to take them. I mean, The Social Network feels like one of the biggest films he's done. He he seems to be in it really for the love of acting, um, which I think is very much to his credit. He he just seems to go for roles that that catch his interest. I mean, possible exception of Trolls, I guess, but really. You know, he's been sticking to kind of smaller, uh, interesting little films. Um, and yeah, I'm kind of intrigued to see what he does next. Yeah, I guess acting is not his number one priority. No, exactly. Um, he's, he's got but we know, other income streams. Yeah. yeah, but we know, for example, that he, yes, he has. Yeah, he's, he's diversified. There's, there's no question <laughs> about it. Uh, but we know that, you know, he, for example, was uh, up for Green Lantern. Whenever Ryan Reynolds got that, he was one of the, the three choices for that. 
I think he did have a shot at the leading man thing uh, with In Time, in time and maybe. Runner yeah, Runner. In time, and both of those were big stinkeroos. And even Justin Timberlake is struggling to get a, a second shot at being a, the big old leading man. Maybe. It's been a while. It's been a while, right? Runner Runner was the last real, real leading man thing that he did. Um, oh, there's Wonder Wheel, I guess. The, the Woody Allen movie, Wonder Wheel in 2017. Yeah. Uh, but that's a very, very small movie that, that nobody saw. For all kinds of reasons. So it's been a long, long time since Runner Runner. So maybe it's taken a while for him to get back or for a studio to even go, all right, let's take a chance on you, even with this modest drama. Uh, and it reminded me a little bit of of News of the World and that they're both stories we've seen a million times, but if they're told with a certain sensitivity and with a certain taste, yeah, then they're they're more than palatable. Uh, so this is, you know, if you if you have an Apple TV Plus subscription, it's there for you. It's free. It's not costing you anything. <laughs> Check out Palmer. Three stars for Palmer. And on that note, that is it for this week's Empire Podcast, brought to you by the word batshit. We have to <laughs> stop saying that, folks. Moratorium on batshit. I, mean, I don't uh, think Dracula us. would mind. It's fine. Do not say batshit. <laughs> He's not Russian. He's not a KGB operative. He's the Vlad, Prince of Darkness. Blood, suck blood. <laughs> bad shit. It's nice. It's nice. Great it's, success. It's important. <laughs> My vampire wife. Join us next week for more film-related fun where we'll be joined by... Well, at the moment... Me and Helen. You and Helen. <laughs> at the moment... Rosamund Pike, star of I Care A Lot, which is a film I'm very excited about. Mm. Mm. Hugh Bonneville, star of To Olivia, in which he plays Roald Dahl. If you pause the pilot of Da Vinci's Demons just right, true story. What? You can see his penis. In Paddington? Yes, in Paddington. If you pause Paddington just right, you can see his... his Look at Ben's jar face. Of marmalade. No. This is not canon. I refuse to believe this is canon. <laughs> it's not a canon, Ben. I mean, it's large, but oh, it's not no. a canon. <laughs> yes. <laughs> and we may, we may also be joined by, and when we say me, may, uh, none of these interviews have happened yet, which is why I'm, I'm treading a little carefully around it. But the hope is we'll be joined by Rosamund Pike and Hugh Bonifil and also... Kathy Yan, director of Birds of Prey, but her first movie is Dead Pigs, which didn't have a release in this country for a long, well, ever, in fact. <laughs> uh, but now it is out on movie, and we'll be reviewing it on next week's show as well. So that little lot, if it happens, um, I'm going to have to figure out how we're going to make next week's show work. But don't worry, <laughs> leave that with me. I am a professional. <laughs> but until then... Until we meet again, until that auspicious occasion, it is goodbye from Squadcast name, Seafood Jam Shrimp Queen, a.k.a. Ben Travis. What? 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 Ben? What? Star? Star? Bab? Bab? Star? Okay. Don't know what's happening. (laughs) (laughs) It is goodbye from Liana Mormont versus Clickers, James Dyer. Goodbye, Christopher. Goodbye, James. It is goodbye from Culotte magazine. Helen O'Hara. It's another Barb and Star reference. Bye-bye. It is. Toodaloo. And it's goodbye from me, Ron Quicksilver. And that could be a reference to two things. I'm going to let you decide which it is. I am off to order a Domino slash Nando's combo. Okay. Oh, nice. Hear me out. <laughs> butterfly chicken breast, double butterfly chicken breast, hot on top of the sizzler with a side of macho peas, Piri chips and, of course, chicken strippers with the barbecue sauce. Oh, my word. 
Excuse me, well, I'm salivating here, literally at the thought of it. I'm off to kiss a chef. They're Thank you so much. They're not going to pay you in free food, Chris. We can, but hope. Thank you so much for listening to the Empire Podcast in association with Nando's and Domino's. <laughs> <laughs> Thanks for listening. See you next week. Bye-bye. <laughs>